The following is a conversation with Elon Musk, his third time on this, the Lex Friedman podcast. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. First is Athletic Greens, the all-in-one nutrition drink I drink twice a day. Second is ButcherBox, high-quality meat that makes up most of my diet. Third is Inside Tracker, a service I use to track my biological data. Fourth is Roka, my favorite sunglasses and prescription glasses. And fifth is Sleep, a self-cooling mattress cover I sleep on. So the choice is nutrition, food, health, style, or sleep. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out the sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Athletic Greens and it's newly named AG1 Drink, which is an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced a multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. It's the first thing I drink every day. I drink it twice a day, in fact. I drink it after a uh, long run. I recently did a 16-mile run, and I can't tell you how good it felt to get back and uh, pour myself a refreshing Athletic Greens and start the day. I ran fasted, and that's probably one of my favorite things to do. Run for a long period of time on an empty stomach, thinking through the problems of the day or the problems of life in general, and then get back to sort of uh, ground to normal life by drinking Athletic Greens, getting in the shower, and just hitting the ground running with a little bit of coffee and focus. Anyway, they'll give you one month supply of fish oil when you sign up at athleticgreens.com slash lex. That's athleticgreens.com slash lex. This show is brought to you by ButcherBox, high quality meat that is pretty much the only thing I eat. They ship a box of meat to your home, eight to 14 pounds of it. You can pick a pre-made box or customize one, which is what I do. And that's it. It's pretty simple. I've spoken about this before. I think uh, meat of different kinds is a, makes up a large part of my diet. I just feel good when I consume a, a large amount of meat. It's not uh, an allergy thing. It's not some kind of um, reducing inflammation thing. I don't know what it is because I also am pretty happy eating carbs as well. I just feel better. I'm happier. I can perform better both uh, physically and mentally when I consume a large amount of meat, whether that's a carnivore or keto diet, I just feel great. And ButcherBox is just high quality meat that I can rely on. There's all kinds of cuts there, but ground beef is the basics and the thing I love the most. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members a great deal for the new year. Sign up at butcherbox.com lex and you'll receive the ultimate New Year's bundle in your first box. This deal includes ground beef, chicken thighs, and more. That's more than seven pounds of meat added to your first box for free. Get this New Year's bundle before it's gone by going to butcherbox.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. They have a bunch of plans, most of which include a blood test that gives you a lot of information that you can then make decisions based on. They have algorithms. I love 
the world of algorithms that analyze your blood data, DNA data, and fitness tracker data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Andrew Huberman, the great, the powerful Andrew Huberman talks a lot about it. David Sinclair, he by the way was just on his podcast that you should check out, also talks a lot about it in uh, my conversation with him and in his conversation with others. I love this idea. It feels like the future. You should definitely be making lifestyle and health decisions based on actual data connected to you, not just the general population. You are a special, unique biological fingerprint that uh, requires unique uh, treatment, unique lifestyle decisions. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store if you go to insidetracker.com slash lex. That's insidetracker.com slash lex. This show is brought to you by Roka, the maker of glasses and sunglasses that I love wearing for their design, feel, and innovation on materials, optics, and grip. Roka was started by two all-American swimmers from Stanford and was born out of an obsession with performance. Like I said, I love the word obsession and performance. And I got a chance to meet and hang out a bunch with one of those founders, Rob, an incredible human being here in Austin. They have a facility here in Austin. It's just cool to see people at the top of their game in terms of both design and manufacturing and all that kind of stuff. These glasses, first of all, look badass, look amazing, but they're also designed to be active in, extremely lightweight. The grip is comfortable, but strong. And the style, I said badass, but it's uh, badass in a classy way. It holds up in all conditions when I'm wearing a suit or wearing running gear, including on long runs in 100 degree Austin weather or in uh, freezing Boston weather, both work. Check them out for both prescription glasses and sunglasses at roca.com and enter code LEX to save 20% off your first order. That's roca.com and enter code LEX. This episode is also brought to you by 8sleep and its Pod Pro mattress. It controls temperature with an app, it's packed with sensors, it can cool down to as low as 55 degrees on each side of the bed separately. Given that I just got out of said bed, I could tell you, because it's short-term memory, that the thing feels incredible. There's very few things I enjoy in life. <laughs> as much as a power nap or full night's sleep on a cooled bed, with a warm blanket, my mind empty of thoughts, having fought the battles of the day, and just resting, escaping it all in a little bit uh, of a dream world. Alice in Wonderland, but more like Lex in Wonderland. They have a Pod Pro cover, so you can just add that to your mattress without having to buy theirs. But their mattress is nice too. It can track a bunch of metrics like heart rate variability, but cooling alone is worth the money. Go to asleep.com slash Lex to get special savings. That's asleep.com slash Lex. And I will meet you there, my friend, in the dream world. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Elon Musk. Yeah, 
make yourself comfortable. Boo. Uh, no, wow. Okay. Do <laughs> <laughs> no. you, you don't do the headphones thing? No. Okay. Right. I, I mean, how close do I get? Need to get the same. The, the closer you are, the sexier you sound. Uh, hey, babe. Yep. Uh, can't get enough of Leo. You all that, baby. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna clip that out. Uh, anytime somebody messages me about you, I'll you just want respond my body to that. and you think I'm sexy, come right out and tell me so. So good. Okay, so <laughs> serious mode activate. All right. <laughs> serious mode. Come on, you're Russian. You can be serious. Yeah, I like, know. Everyone's serious all the time in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we'll get. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, it's gotten soft. <sighs> Allow me to say that the SpaceX launch of human beings to orbit on May 30th, 2020, was seen by many as the first step in a new era of human space exploration. These human spaceflight missions were a beacon of hope to me and to millions over the past two years as our world has been going through one of the most difficult periods in recent human history. We saw, we see the rise of division, fear, cynicism, and the loss of common humanity, right when it is needed most. So first, Elon, let me say thank you for giving the world hope and reason to be excited about the future. Oh, it's kind of you to say. I do want to do that. Humanity has uh, obviously a lot of issues and, and uh, you know, people at times do, do bad things, but, you know, despite all that, um, you know, I, I love humanity and I think we should uh, make sure we do everything we can to have a good future and, a, and an exciting future and, and one where that maximizes the happiness of the people. Let me ask about uh, Crew Dragon Demo 2. So that, that first flight with humans on board, um, how did you feel leading up to that launch? Were you scared? Were you excited? What was going through your mind? So much was at stake. Yeah, no, that was extremely stressful, no question. Um, we obviously could not um, let them down in any way. Um, so, extremely stressful, I'd say, uh, to say the least. But we did, I was confident that at the time that we launched that no one could think of anything uh, at all to do that would improve the probability of success. Um, and we we racked our brains to think of any possible way to improve the probability of success. We could not think of anything more, and and nor could NASA. And so, then that that's just the best that we could do. So then we we had we went ahead and launched. Now I'm not a religious person, um, but I nonetheless got on my knees and prayed for, for that mission. Were you able to sleep? No. <laughs> How did it feel? when it was a success, first when the launch was a success and when they returned back home or back to Earth? It was a great relief. Yeah. It, it's, for, for high stress situations, I find it's, it's not so much elation as relief. Um, and, um, you know, I think once, as, as we, we got more comfortable and proved out the systems, because, you know, we, we really, um, you, know, you got to make sure everything works. Um, I, I was, it was definitely a lot more uh, enjoyable with the subsequent uh, astronaut uh, missions. And I thought the, the Inspiration mission was, was actually very inspiring, um, Inspiration 4 mission. Um, I'd, I'd encourage people to watch the Inspiration documentary on Netflix. It's actually really good. Um, and it really is inspiring. I was actually inspired by that. Um, and I, 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 so that one I felt, I, I was 
kind of able to enjoy the the actual mission and not just be super stressed all the time. So for people that somehow don't know, it's the all civilian first time, all civilian out to space, out to orbit. Yeah, and it was the high, I think the highest orbit that uh, in like I don't know thirty or forty years or something. The only one that was higher was the one shuttle, uh, sorry, a Hubble uh, servicing mission. Um, and then before that, it would have been um, Apollo in 72. It's pretty wild. So it's, it's cool. It's good. You, you know, I think uh, as, you know, as a species, like we want to be, you know, continuing to do better and, and reach higher ground. And, and like, I think it would be tragic, extremely tragic, if um, Apollo was the high water mark for humanity, you know, and that, and that's as far as we ever got. Um, and it's, um, it's concerning that here we are, um, 49 years after the last mission to the moon. And so almost half a century, uh, and we've not been back. Um, and that's, that's worrying. It's like, is that, does that mean we've peaked as a civilization or, or what? So like, I think we, we got to get back to the moon and, and build a base there you know, a science base, I think we could learn a lot about the nature of the universe if we have a proper science base on the moon. Um, you know, like we have a, a science base in Antarctica and, you know, many other parts of the world. And um, so that that that's like, I think the next big thing, we've got to have like a, a serious like moon base um, and then get people to Mars and, you know, get, get out there and be a space-faring civilization. I'll ask you about some of those details, but since you're so busy with the hard engineering challenges of everything that's involved, are you still able to marvel at the magic of it all, of space travel, of every time the rocket goes up, especially when it's a crewed mission? Or are you just so overwhelmed with the, all the challenges that you have to solve? And actually, sort of to add to that, the reason I, I wanted to ask this question of May 30th, it's it's been some time, so you can look back and think about the impact already. It's already... At the time, it was an engineering problem, maybe. Now it's becoming a historic moment. Like it's a moment that, how many moments will be remembered about the 21st century? To me, that or something like that, maybe Inspiration 4, or one of those would be remembered as the early steps of a new age of uh, space exploration. Yeah, I mean, during the launches itself, so I mean, the, the thing I think maybe some people know, but a lot of people don't know, is like, I'm actually the chief engineer of SpaceX, so um, the you know, I've signed off on pretty much all the design decisions. Um, and, you know, so if, if there's something that goes wrong with that vehicle, it's, it's fundamentally my fault, you know, so. Um, so I'm really just thinking about all the things that like, so, so when I see the rocket, I see all the things that could go wrong, and the things that could be better. And the same with the Dragon spacecraft, it's uh, like, other people will say, "Oh, this is a, a spacecraft or a rocket, and that looks really cool." I'm like, I've I've like a readout of like this is the these are, these are the risks, these are the pro problems. That's what I see. Like, <laughs> so it's not what other people see when they see the product, you know. So let me uh, ask you then to analyze Starship in that same way. I, I know you have you'll talk about in more detail about Starship in the near future, perhaps. You yeah, had we can that, talk about it now if you want. Um, but just in that same way, like you said, you see, when you see a, uh, when you see a rocket, you see a sort of a list of risks. In that same way, you said that Starship is a really hard problem. So there's many ways I can ask this, but 
if you magically could solve one problem perfectly, one engineering problem perfectly, which one would it be? On like, Starship? On, on, sorry, on Starship. So is yeah. it maybe related to the efficiency, the, uh, the engine, the weight of the different components, the complexity of various things, maybe the controls of the, the crazy thing has to do to land? No, it's actually the, the by far the, the biggest thing absorbing my time is uh, engine production. Not, not the design of the engine. The, I, I've often said prototypes are, are easy, production is hard. Um, so we have the most advanced rocket engine that's ever been designed. Um, the because I say currently the, the the best rocket engine ever is probably the RD one eighty or RD one seventy. Um, that that's the Dora Russian engine basically, um, and um, and still it, I think an engine should only count if it's gotten something to orbit. Um, <laughs> so our engine has not gotten anything to orbit yet, um, but it is. It's the first engine that's actually better than than the the, the Russian RD engines, which are, were amazing design. So you're talking about Raptor engine. What makes it amazing? What what are the different aspects of it that make it like? What are yeah. you the most excited about uh, if the whole thing works in terms of uh, efficiency, all those kinds of things? Well, it's the Raptor is a a full flow uh, staged combustion. Um, engine and it's at, at operating at a very high uh, chamber pressure. So one of the key figures of merit, or perhaps the key, key figure of merit, is um, what is the chamber pressure at which the rocket engine can operate? That's the combustion chamber pressure. Um, so a Raptor is uh, designed to operate at uh, 300 bar, possibly maybe higher. That's 300 atmospheres. So. Um, the record right now for operational engine is the RD engine that I mentioned, the Russian RD, which is, I believe, around 267 uh, bar. Um, and the, the 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 difficulty of the chamber pressure is increases on a nonlinear basis. So 10% more chamber pressure is more like 50% uh, more difficult. <laughs> um, but that that chamber pressure is that 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 is what allows you to get a very high uh, power density. For, uh, for the engine. Um, so uh, enabling um, a, a very high uh, thrust to weight ratio um, and um, a very high specific impulse. So specific impulse is like a measure of the efficiency of a rocket engine. Or, um, it's, it's really the, 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 uh, exhaust, the, the effective exhaust velocity of, of the gas coming out of the engine. Um, so, uh, with a, with a very high chamber pressure, you can have um, a a compact engine that nonetheless has a high expansion ratio, which is the ratio between the uh, um, exit nozzle uh, and the uh, throat. So you, you know, engines got like you see a rocket engine's got like sort of like a like a hourglass shape. It's like a chamber, and then it necks down, and then there's a nozzle, and the ratio of the the, the exit diameter to the the throat uh, expansion ratio. So why is it such a hard engine to manufacture at scale? Uh, it's very complex. So a lot um, of com what does complexity mean here? There's a lot of components involved. There's a lot of a lot of components and a lot of uh, unique materials. That uh, so we had to invent a, a 
several alloys that don't exist in order to make this engine work. Um, so it's and, a materials problem too. It's a, a materials problem. And um, in, in, a, in a staged combustion, a full flow staged combustion, there are, there are many uh, feedback loops in the system. So you, uh, basically you've, you've got uh, propellants and, and, and uh, hot gas flowing um, to, simultaneously to so many different places on the engine. Um, and uh, they, they all have a recursive effect on each other. So you change one thing here, it has a recursive effect here, it changes something over there, and, and it's, 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 it's quite hard to control. Um, like there's a reason no one's made this before. Um, but, um, and the reason we're doing um, a stage combustion uh, full flow is, is because it, it has the highest, uh, the highest uh, theoretical possible uh, efficiency. Um, so in, in, in order to make a fully reusable rocket, um, which that, that's the, really the holy grail uh, of orbital rocketry. Um, you have to have, everything's gotta be the best. Uh, it's gotta be the best engine, the best airframe, the best heat shield, um, extremely light uh, avionics, um, very, you know, very clever control mechanisms. Um, you've gotta shed mass in, in, in any possible way that you can. Um, for example, we are, instead of putting landing legs on the booster and ship, we are going to catch them with a tower to save the weight of the landing legs. Legs. So that's like, I mean, we're talking about catching the largest flying object ever made uh, with on a giant tower with with chopstick arms. It's like Karate Kid with yeah. the fly, but much bigger. <laughs> I mean, pulling this something like probably that off. won't work the first time. <laughs> Uh, and anyway, so this is bananas. This is banana stuff. So you mentioned that you doubt, well, not you doubt, but there, there's days or moments when you doubt that this is even possible. It's so difficult. The possible part is, well, at, at this point, <clears throat> we'll. I think we'll we'll get Starship to work. Um, um, there's a question of timing. How long will it take us to do this? Uh, how long will it take us to actually achieve uh, full and rapid reusability? Because um, it will take uh, probably many launches before we are able to have full and rapid reusability. Um, but I can say that that the physics pencils out. Like the like we're not uh, like at this point, I'd say we're confident that we, that like let's say we, I'm, I'm very confident. So, success is in the set of all possible outcomes. Mm, right. It's not <laughs> an for, all set. Oh. <laughs> for, for, for a while there, I was not convinced that success yeah. was in the set of possible outcomes, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is very important, actually. <laughs> but so we were... Um, um, so it, you're it, saying it, there's a chance. I'm saying there's a chance, exactly. Right, cool. um, uh, just not sure how, how, how long it will take. Uh, we have a very, very talented team. They're working night and day to make it happen. Um, and, uh, and like, like I said, the, the, the critical thing to achieve for the revolution in space flight and for humanity to be a space-faring civilization is to have a fully and rapidly reusable rocket, orbital rocket. Um, there's not even been any orbital rocket that's been fully reusable ever. And this has always been the, 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 the holy grail of 
rocketry. Um, and uh, many smart people, very smart people, uh, have tried to do this before and they've not succeeded. So, because um, it's su such a hard problem. What's your source of belief in situations like this? When the engineering problem is so difficult, there's a lot of experts, many of whom you admire who have failed in the past. Yes. And um, a lot of people, you know, the, a lot of experts, maybe journalists, all the kind of, you know, the public in general have a lot of doubt about whether it's possible. And you yourself know that uh, even if it's a non-null set, non-empty set of success, it's still unlikely or very difficult. Like, where do you go to, both personally, um, intellectually, as an engineer, as a team, like for source of strength needed to sort of persevere through this and to uh, keep going with the project, take it to completion? source of strength hmm. I, I just really not how I think about things um, I mean for me it's simply this this is something that is important to get done um, and we, we should just keep doing it um, or die trying and I I don't need a source of strength so quitting is not even like um... that's not it's not in my nature okay and I, I don't care about optimism or pessimism fuck that we're gonna get it done gonna get it done can you uh then zoom back in to specific problems with starship or any engineering problems you work on can you try to introspect your particular biological neural network your thinking process and describe how you think through problems through different engineering and design problems is there like a systematic process you've spoken about first principles thinking but yeah, is there a kind of process to it well um yeah, you know, like saying like like physics is a law and everything else is a recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, like I've met a lot of people who can break the law, but uh, I haven't met anyone who could break physics. <laughs> so, uh, so first, for you know any kind of technology problem, you have to sort of just make sure you're not violating physics. Um, and you know, uh, first principles analysis, I think, is something that can be applied to really any walk of life, uh, any, anything really. It's just, it's, it's really just saying, um, you know, let's, let's boil something down to the most fundamental uh, principles, the things that we are most confident are true at a foundational level. And that sets your, at your, sets your axiomatic base, and then you reason up from there, and then you cross check your conclusion against the, the axiomatic truths. Um, so, um, you know, some basics in physics would be like, are you violating conservation of energy or momentum or something like that? You know, then you, you're, it's not going to work. <laughs> um, so uh, that's the, you know, so that's just to establish is is it is it possible? And then I, another good physics tool is thinking about things in the limit. If you if you take a particular thing and you uh, scale it to a very large number or to a very small number, how does how do things change? Um, well, it's like temporal, like in number of things you manufacture, or something like that, and then in time. Yeah, like let's say, say take an example of like um, like manufacturing, which I think is just a very underrated problem, um, and and 
uh, like I said, it's it's much harder to take an advanced technology product and bring it into volume manufacturing than it is to design it in the first place. My orders of magnitude. So, um, so let's say you're trying to figure out is um, like why is this this uh, part or product expensive? Is it um, because of something fundamentally foolish that we're doing, or is it because our volume is too low? And so then you say, okay, well, what if our volume was a million units a year? Is it still expensive? That's what I mean by thinking about things in the limit. If it's still expensive at a million units a year, then volume is not the reason why your thing is expensive. There's something fundamental about the design. And then you then can focus on the com reducing the complexity or something like that in the design. You change the design to change change the part to be something that is uh, uh, not fundamentally expensive. But but it, it, like that's a common thing in rocketry because the the unit volume is is relatively low, and so a common excuse would be, well, it's expensive because our unit volume is low, um, and if we were in like automotive or something like that or consumer electronics, then our costs would be lower. I'm like I'm like okay, so let's say we now you're making a million units a year. Is it still expensive? If the answer is yes, then uh, economies of scale are not the issue. Do you throw into manufacturing? Do you throw like supply chain? talked about resources and materials and stuff like that. Do you throw that into the calculation of trying to reason from first principles, like how we're gonna make the supply chain work here? Yeah, yeah. And then the cost of materials, things like that, or is that yeah, too much? Uh, exactly, so um, like another, like a good example, I think of thinking about things uh, in the limit is um, if you take any, uh, you know, any, any product, any machine or whatever, um, like take a rocket or whatever, uh, and say, um, if you've got, if, if you look at the raw, if, raw materials in the rocket, um, so you're gonna have like, uh, I don't know, aluminum, steel, titanium, inconel, uh, special, specialty alloys, um, copper, and, and you say, what are the, how, what, what, what's the weight of the constituent elements of, of each of these elements, and what is their raw material value? And that sets the, asymptotic limit for how uh, low the cost of the vehicle can be unless you change the, the materials. So, and then when you do that, I uh, call it like maybe the magic wand number or something like that. So that would be like, if you had the, you know, a, 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 like just a, a pile of these raw materials here and you could wave the magic wand and rearrange the atoms into the final shape, um, that would be the lowest possible cost that you could make this thing for unless you change the materials. So then, and that is always a almost always a, a very low number. Um, so then, the, the what's actually causing things to be expensive is how you put the atoms into the desired shape. Yeah, actually, if you don't mind me taking a tiny tangent, I had a I often talk to Jim Keller, who's somebody who worked with you as a, oh, yeah. as a friend. Yeah. Jim was a, yeah did great work at Tesla. So um, I suppose he carries the flame of the same kind of thinking that mm -hmm. you're you're talking about now um and I, I guess i see that same thing at, at tesla and and uh spacex folks who work there they kind of learn this way of thinking and it kind of becomes obvious almost but anyway i had um argument not argument uh, he educated me about how cheap it might be to manufacture a tesla bot we just we had an argument. What is? How can you reduce the cost of scale of, of producing a robot? Because so I got the chance to interact quite a bit 
um, obviously in, in the academic circles with humanoid robots and then Boston Dynamics and sure. stuff like that. And they're, they're very expensive to, to build. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jim kind of schooled me on saying like, okay, like this kind of first principles thinking of how can we get the cost of manufacture mm -hmm. down? Um, I suppose you do that, you have done uh, that kind of thinking for Teslabot and for all kinds of all kinds of complex systems that are traditionally seen as complex. And you say, okay, how can we simplify everything down? Yeah. I, I mean, I think if you, if you are really good at manufacturing, you can basically make at high volume, you can basically make anything for a cost that asymptotically approaches the raw, raw material value of the constituents, plus any intellectual property that you need to do license. <laughs> anything. Right. But it's, it's hard. It's not like that's a very hard thing to do, but but it is possible for anything. Anything in volume can be made, of, like I said, for a cost that asymptotically approaches its raw material uh, constituents plus intellectual property license rights. So what will often happen in trying to design a product is, is people will start with the tools and, and, and parts and methods that they are familiar with um, and then and, and try to create a, the product using their existing tools and methods. Um, the other way to think about it is uh, actually imagine the, try to imagine the platonic ideal of the perfect product or technology, whatever it might be. Um, and say, so what is this, what, what is the perfect arrangement of atoms that would be the, the best possible product? And now let us try to figure out how to get the atoms in that shape. I mean, it's, it sounds, um, uh, it's almost like Rick and Morty absurd until you start to really think about it. And it, you really should think about it in this way because yeah. everything else is kind of, uh, uh, if, if you think uh, you, you might fall victim to the momentum of the way things were done in the past, unless you think in this way. Well, just as a function of inertia, people will uh, want to use the same tools and methods that they are familiar with. Um, they just, that's what they'll do by default. Yeah. Um, and then that, that will lead to an outcome of things that can be made with those tools and methods, but is unlikely to be the um, platonic ideal of the perfect product. Um, so then, so that's why it's good to think of things in both directions. So like, what can we build with the tools that we have? But then, but, but also what is the, what is the perfect, the theoretical perfect product look like? And, and that, that theoretical perfect product is going to be a moving target because as you learn more, the, definition of or, or for that perfect product will, will change because you don't actually know what the perfect product is but you can successfully approximate uh, a, a more perfect product um so thinking about it like that and then saying okay now what tools methods materials whatever do we need to create in order to get the atoms in that shape but, but for people very rarely think about it that way but it's a powerful tool I should mention that the brilliant Siobhan Zillis is hanging, <laughs> hanging out with us. Uh, in case you hear a voice of uh, wisdom from uh, from from outside, from up above. Uh, okay, so let me ask you about Mars. You mentioned it would be great for science to put um, a base on the moon to do some research, but the truly big leap again, in this category of seemingly impossible is to put a human being on Mars. When do you think SpaceX will land a human being on Mars? Hmm.
Best case is about five years, worst case, 10 years. What are the determining factors, would you say, from an engineering perspective, or is that, that not the bottlenecks? Uh, you know, it's, it's fundamentally, um, you know, engineering the, the vehicle. Um, I mean, Starship is the most co complex and advanced rocket that's ever been made by, I don't know, order of magnitude or something like that. It's a lot. It's really next level. So, um, and the fundamental optimization of Starship is minimizing cost per ton to orbit and ultimately cost per ton to the surface of Mars. Um, this may seem like a mercantile objective, but it is actually the thing that needs to be optimized. Um, like there is a certain cost per ton to the surface of Mars where we can afford to establish a self-sustaining uh, city, um, and, the, and, and then above that we cannot afford to do it. Um, so right, right now, you couldn't fly to Mars for a trillion dollars. No amount of money could get you a ticket to Mars. So we need to get that above uh, you know, to get that like something that is actually possible at all. Um, um, but, but then, that, but that's, that's, we, we don't, we don't just want to have, you know, with Mars flags and footprints and then not come back for a half century like we did with the moon. Uh, in, in order to pass a very important great filter, I think we, we need to be a multi-planet species. Um, this but, may sound somewhat esoteric to, to a lot of people, but, uh, like eventually, given enough time, uh, that's something the Earth is likely to experience some calamity um, that could be uh, something that humans do to themselves or an external event like happened to the dinosaurs. Um, and um, but a bit of you know eventually, and, and if, if, if nothing, if, if none of that happens, and somehow magically we, we keep going. Uh, then the, the sun will ex the sun is gradually expanding, um, and will en engulf the Earth, um, and probably Earth gets too hot for uh, life in uh, about five hundred million years. It's a long time, but that's only ten percent longer than Earth has been around. And so, if you think about like the the current situation, is really remarkable um, and kind of hard to believe, but. Uh, Earth's been around four and a half billion years, and this is the first time in four and a half billion years that it's been possible to extend life beyond Earth. And that window of opportunity may be open for a long time, and I hope it is, but it also may be open for a short time. And we should, uh, I think it was wise for us to uh, act quickly while the window is open, just in case it, it closes. Yeah, the existence of nuclear weapons, pandemics, all kinds of threats yeah. should uh, should kind of um, give us some motivation. I mean, civilization could get um, could die with a bang or a whimper. You know, if it's uh, if it dies a demographic collapse, then it's more of a whimper, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but and if it's World War Three, it's more of a bang. Uh, but but these are all risks. Um, I mean, it's important to think of these things and just you know think of things as like probabilities, not certainties. Um, there's a certain probability that uh, something bad will happen on Earth. I, I like, I think most likely the future will be good. Um, but there's like, let's say for argument's sake, um, a one percent chance per century of of a civilization ending event. Like that was Stephen Hawking's estimate. Um, I think he's 
he might be right about that. Uh, so then, uh, you know, we, we should basically think of this like being a multi-planet species is like taking out insurance for life itself. Like li life insurance for life. <laughs> um, wow, so it's turned into an infomercial real quick. Life insurance for life, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we can bring the, 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 the creatures from, uh, you know, plants and animals from Earth to Mars and breathe life into the planet um, and, and have a second planet with, with life. Um, that would be great. Um, they can't bring themselves there, you know, so if we don't bring them to Mars, then they will just for sure all die when the sun expands anyway, and then that'll be it. What do you think is the most difficult aspect of building a civilization on Mars, terraforming Mars, like from an engineering perspective, from a financial perspective, human perspective, to get, to get a large number of folks there who will never return back to Earth? Uh, no, they could certainly return. Some will return back to Earth. They will choose to stay there yeah. for the rest of their lives. Yeah, many will. Um, but uh, we, we, you know, it, we <laughs> we need the spaceships back, like the ones that go to Mars. Right. We need them back. So yeah. you can hop on if you want. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. but we can't just not have the spaceships come back. We, those things are expensive. We need them back. I'd like to come back and do another trip. I mean, do you think about the terraforming aspect, like actually building, are you so focused right now on the spaceships part that's so critical yeah, yeah. to get it to Mars? Just, we absolutely, if you can't get there, nothing else matters. Yeah. So, and like I said, you, you, we can't get there with, at some extraordinarily high cost. I mean, the current cost of, um, let's say one ton to the surface of Mars is on the order of a billion dollars. So, because you don't just need the rocket and the launch and everything, you need like heat shield, you need, you know, guidance system, you need uh, deep space communications, uh, you need some kind of landing system. So like rough approximation would be a uh, billion dollars per ton to the surface of Mars right now. Um, this is obviously um, way too expensive to create a self-sustaining civilization. Um, so we need to improve that by at least a factor of a thousand. A million per ton? Yes, ideally less than, much less than a million a ton. But if it's not, like it's gotta be, you have to say like, what, well, how much can society afford to spend or want to, just want to spend on a self-sustaining city on Mars? The self-sustaining part is important. Like it's just the, the key threshold, um, the, the great filter will, will have been passed when the city on Mars it can survive even if the spaceships from Earth stop coming for any reason. It doesn't matter what the reason is, but if they stop coming for any reason, will it die out or will it not? And if there's even one critical ingredient missing, then it still doesn't count. It's like, you know, if you're on a long sea voyage and you've got everything except vitamin C, <laughs> and it's only a matter of time, you know, you're gonna die. <laughs> so so we gotta get Mars, a Mars city to the point where it's self-sustaining. Um, I'm not sure this will really happen in my lifetime, but I, I hope to see it at least have a lot of momentum. And and then you could say, okay, what is the minimum tonnage necessary to uh, have a self-sustaining city? Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty about this. You could say like, I don't know, it's pr probably at least a million tons because um, you have to set up a lot of infrastructure on, on Mars. Um, like I said, you can't be missing any anything that, in order to be self-sustaining, you can't be missing, like you need, you know, semiconductor fabs, you need 
iron ore refineries, like you need lots of things, you know. Uh, so, um, and Mars is not super hospitable. It's it's the least inhospitable planet, but it's definitely a fixer offer of a planet. Outside of Earth. Yes. Earth, Earth is pretty <laughs> Earth good. Earth is like easy. <laughs> yeah. And also I should, we should clarify in the solar system. Yes, in the solar system. There might be nice like vacation spots there might be some great planets out there, but it's too hopeless. hard to get there. Yeah, way, 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 way too hard, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Let me push back on that. Not really a pushback, but a quick uh, curveball of a question. So you did mention physics as the the first starting point. So um, general relativity allows for wormholes. Uh, they technically can exist. Do you think um, those can ever be leveraged by humans to travel faster than the speed of light? Well, are you saying the whole thing strong? is is debatable? Uh, the, the, the we currently do not know of any means of going faster than the speed of light. Uh, there, there is like, like te, there, there are some ideas about having space. Like so, so you can only move at the speed of light through through space, but. If you can make space itself move, that that that's like that that's warping right. space. If, um, space is is capable of moving faster than the speed of light, <laughs> right? Uh, like the universe in the Big Bang, the universe, universe expanded at much much more than the speed of light by a lot. Yeah. Um, so, um, but the if this is possible, the, the the amount of energy required to warp space is so gigantic, it boggles the mind. So all the work you've done with propulsion, how much innovation is possible with rocket propulsion? Is this, um, I mean, you've seen it all and you're constantly innovating in every aspect. How much is possible? Like how much can you get 10X somehow? Is there something in there in physics that you can get significant improvement in terms of efficiency of engines and all those kinds of things? Well, as I was saying, like the, the really the Holy Grail is a, a fully and rapidly reusable orbital system. Um, so uh, right now, uh, the Falcon 9 is the only reusable rocket out there. Uh, but it, but the the booster comes back and lands. And you've seen the videos, uh, and we get the nose cone fairing back, but we do not get the upper stage back. So. Uh, that means that we have a minimum cost of, of uh, building an upper stage. Um, you can think of like a two-stage rocket of, of sort of like two airplanes, like a big airplane and a smaller airplane. Um, and we get the big airplane back, but not the smaller airplane. And so it still costs a lot, you know, so that upper stage is, you know, at least $10 million. Um, and then the degree of, the, the booster is not as reuse, it's not as rapidly and completely reusable as we'd like in order the fairings. So, you know, our, our kind of minimum marginal cost, not counting overhead for per flight is on the order of 15 to $20 million maybe. Um, so uh, that's that's extremely good for, it's by far better than any rocket ever in history. Um, but uh, with full and rapid reusability, we can reduce the cost per ton to orbit by uh, a factor of 100. Just think of it like, um, like imagine if you had an aircraft or something or a, a car, oh, yeah. um, and if you had to buy a new car every time you went for a drive, 
It'll be very expensive. It'll be silly, frankly. Mm-hmm. But um, but you, in fact, you just refuel the car or recharge the car, and that's uh, makes your trip uh, like <laughs> I don't know a thousand times cheaper. <laughs> so it's the same for rockets. Uh, if you, it's, it's uh, very difficult to make this complex machine that can go to orbit. And so if you cannot reuse it and have to, have to throw even any part of any significant part of it away, that massively increases the cost. So, you know, Starship in theory could do a cost per launch of like a million, maybe $2 million or something like that. Um, and, uh, and put over a hundred tons in orbit, which is crazy. Yeah. So that's incredible. So you're saying like it's uh, by far the biggest bang for the buck is to make it fully reusable versus like some kind of brilliant breakthrough in theoretical physics. No, no, there's no, there's no brilliant break. No, there's no. It just make, you're gonna make the rocket reusable. This yeah. is this is an extremely difficult engineering problem. Got it. Uh, but no, no new physics is required. Just brilliant engineering. Let me ask a slightly philosophical, fun question gotta ask i know you're focused on getting to mars but once we're there on mars what do you what form of government economic system political system do you think would work best for an early civilization of humans is i mean the the interesting reason to talk about this stuff it also make helps people dream about the future i know you're really focused about the short-term engineering dream but it's like I don't know, there's something about imagining an actual civilization on Mars that gives people, sure. really gives people hope. Well, it, w- it would be a new frontier and an opportunity to rethink the whole nature of government, uh, just as was done in the creation of the United States. So, uh, I mean, I would suggest um, having uh, direct democracy, like people vote directly on things as opposed to representative democracy. So uh, representative democracy, I think, is too uh, subject to special interests and co- you know, a coercion of the politicians and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I'd recommend uh, that, that there's just um, direct democracy. People vote on laws, the population votes on laws themselves, and then the laws must be short enough that people can understand them. Yeah, and then like, keeping a well-informed populace, like really being transparent about all the information about what they're voting for. Absolute transparency. Yeah. And not make it as annoying as those cookies. We have to accept the (laughs) accept cookies. (laughs) Like always like, you know, there's like always like a slight amount of trepidation when you click accept cookies. Like, I feel as though there's like perhaps like a, like a very tiny chance that'll open a portal to hell or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly how I feel. Why, why do they, why, why do they keep wanting me to accept the, what do they want with this cookie? I, like somebody got upset with accepting cookies or something somewhere. I mean, who cares? Like, it's so annoying to keep, to keep accepting all these cookies. To me, this is just a, a great. Accept, I, yes, you can have my damn cookie. I don't care. Whatever. You heard it from Elon first. He accepts all of your damn cookies. Yeah. <laughs> and stop asking me. Uh, it's annoying. Yeah, it's uh, it's one example of um, I- implementation of a good idea done really horribly yeah it's, it's somebody who was like there's some good intentions of like privacy or whatever but now everyone just has to click accept cookies and it's now you know you have billions of people who have to keep clicking accept cookie it's super annoying then we just accept the damn cookie it's fine
There is like, um, I think a fundamental problem that we're, because we've not really had a, a, a major, uh, like a world war or something like that in a while, and obviously we would like to not have world wars, um, the, there's not been a cleansing function for rules and regulations. Um, so wars did have, uh, you know, some sort of lining in that there would be a, a reset on rules and regulations uh, after a war. Um, so World Wars One and Two, there were huge resets on rules and regulations. Um, now, as if, if the society, society does not have a war the, the, and there's no cleansing function or garbage collection for rules and regulations, then rules and regulations will accumulate every year because they're immortal. There's no actual humans die, but the laws don't. Uh, so. The, we, we need a garbage collection function for rules and regulations. They should not just be immortal because um, some of the rules and regulations that are put in place will be counterproductive. Uh, done with good intentions, but counterproductive. Sometimes not done with good intentions. So um, if you just if rules and regulations just accumulate every year um, and you get more and more of them, then eventually you won't be able to do anything. You're just like Gulliver with, you know, tied down by thousands of little strings. And we ha we see that in... Um, you know, U.S. and like, like basically all, all, all economies that uh, have been around for for a while, uh, and and regulators and legislators create new rules and regulations every year, but they don't put effort into removing them. And I think that's very important that we put effort into removing rules and regulations. Um, but it gets tough because you get special interests that then are dependent on, like they they have a you know a. Uh, vested interest in that whatever rule and regulation and that they then they fight to not get it removed um yeah so it i mean i guess the problem with the constitution is it's it's kind of like c versus java because it doesn't have any garbage collection built in i think there should be i, I when you first said the 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 metaphor of garbage collection yeah, i love it from a coding standpoint from a coding standpoint yeah yeah i it would be inter interesting if the laws themselves kind of had a built-in thing where they kind of die after a while unless yeah. somebody explicitly publicly defends them yeah. so that that's sort of it's not like somebody has to kill them they kind of die themselves they disappear yeah um not to defend java or anything but you know c plus plus you know you, you could also have great garbage collection in python and so on yeah so yeah something's good something needs to happen or or just the, the civilization's arteries arteries just harden over time and and uh, you can just get less and less done because there's just a, a rule against everything. Um, so so I think like I don't know for Mars or whatever I'd say, or even for you know obviously for Earth as well. Like I think there should be an active process for removing rules and regulations and questioning their existence. Just um, like if we've got a function for creating rules and regulations, because rules and regulations you can also think of as like they're like software or lines of code for operating. Uh, civilization that's the rules and regulations um so it's not like we shouldn't have rules and regulations but the, you, have, you have code accumulation but no code removal um and so it just gets to be, become basically archaic bloatware after a while um and and it's just it, it makes it hard for things to progress so i don't know maybe mars you'd have like an uh, uh you know any given law must have a sunset you know and 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 uh and re require active voting to keep restore to keep it up there you know um and i actually also say like and these are just i don't know recommendations or thoughts and ultimately will be up to the people on mars to decide but i, I think um 
it should be easier to remove a law than to add one because of the just to overcome the inertia of laws. So maybe it's like, uh, for argument's sake, you need like say sixty percent vote to have a law take effect, but only a forty percent vote to remove it. So let me be the guy. You you posted a meme on Twitter recently where there's there's, there's like a, a row of urinals. A guy just walks all the way across, oh, sure, yeah. and he tells you about crypto. <laughs> so, 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 listen, listen, I, I mean, that's happened to me so, so many times. I think maybe even literally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think, technologically speaking, there's any room for ideas of smart contracts or, or so on? Because you mentioned laws. Um, that's an interesting implement use of things like smart contracts to implement the laws by which governments function, like something built on Ethereum or maybe a dog coin that enables smart contracts somehow. I never, I don't quite understand this whole smart contract thing. Um, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so it's I'm a, too dumb to understand smart contracts. Um, <laughs> that's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my general approach to any kind of like deal or whatever is just make sure there's clarity of understanding. That's the most important thing. Right. Um, and, and just keep any kind of deal very, very short and simple, plain language. Um, and just make sure everyone understands this is the deal. Does everyone is it clear? Um, and uh, and and what are the consequences if various things don't happen? Um, but usually deal, deals are um, you know business deals or whatever are way too long and complex and overly lawyered and pointlessly. You mentioned that uh, Doge is the, the people's coin. Yeah, um, and you said that you were literally going SpaceX may consider literally putting uh, a Doge coin on the moon. Is, yeah. it, is this something you're still considering? Uh, Mars, perhaps? Uh, do you think there's some chance, we've talked about political systems on Mars, that uh, Dogecoin is the, the official currency of Mars at some point <laughs> in the future? Well, I, I think Mars itself will need to have a different currency because you can't synchronize due to speed of light. Hmm. Or not easily. Um, so it must be completely standalone from Earth. Well, yeah, because the the Mars is at closest approach. It's four light minutes away, roughly, and then at furthest approach, uh, it's roughly twenty light minutes away, uh, maybe a little more. Um, so you can't really have uh, something synchronizing. You know, if you if if you've got a twenty minute speed of light issue, if it's got a one minute blockchain, uh, it's it's not going to synchronize properly. Um, so Mars would, need, would I don't know if Mars would have a cryptocurrency as a thing, but probably, seems likely, um, but it would be some kind of localized uh, thing on Mars. Um, and you let the people decide. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the, the future of Mars should be up to the Martians. Uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, I think the cryptocurrency thing is an interesting approach to reducing the um, error in the the database that is called money. Um, you know, I think I have a pretty deep understanding of the of what money actually is on a practical day-to-day -day basis because of PayPal. Um, you know, we really got in deep there. Um, and right now the money system actually for you know, practical purposes is 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 really a bunch of uh, heterogeneous uh, 
mainframes running uh, old COBOL. <laughs> okay, you mean literally? That's literally. That, that literally, what's happening in yeah. batch mode? Okay, in batch mode. Yeah, uh, uh, pity the poor bastards who have to maintain that code. Okay, that's a that's a pain. That's pain. Not even Fortran. It's COBOL. Yep, it's COBOL. Like, and they still the banks are still buying mainframes in 2021, and running ancient COBOL code, uh, and uh, you know the the Federal Reserve is like probably even older than the, what the banks have, and they have an old COBOL mainframe, <laughs> and so now the, and and so the, the the government effectively has editing privileges on the on the money database, um, and they use those editing privileges to. Um, make more money <laughs> whenever they want. And this increases the error in the database that is money. So if you, I think money should really be viewed through the lens of uh, information theory. And uh, and so it's uh, you know, kind of like uh, like an internet connection, like what's the bandwidth, uh, you know, to total bit rate, uh, what is the latency, jitter, uh, packet drop, uh, you know, errors in, errors in the network uh, communication. Just think of money like that, basically. Um, I think that's probably the right way to think of it. And and then say what what system, uh, from an information theory standpoint, allows an economy to function the best, uh, and you know, um, crypto is an attempt to reduce the the error uh, in, uh, in in money that is contributed by uh, governments. Uh, Diluting the money supply uh, as basically a pernicious, a pernicious form of taxation. So both policy in terms of with inflation and actual like technological cobalt, like cryptocurrency takes us into the 21st century in terms of the actual systems that allow you to do the transaction, to store wealth, all those kinds of things. Like I said, just in think theory. of money as information. People um, often will think of money as having power in and of itself. Um, it does not. It, money is uh, is information, and it, it does not have power in and of itself. Uh, like the, you know, again, applying the the physics tools of thinking about things in the limit is helpful. If you are stranded on a tropical island um, and uh, you have a trillion dollars, it's useless. Because there's no there's no resource allocation. Mon money is a database for resource allocation, but there's no resource to allocate except yourself. So money is useless. Um, uh, if you're stranded on a desert island with no food, you uh, all the Bitcoin in the world will not stop you from starving. Yeah. So. Um, so, like, just just think of money as as a database for resource allocation um, across time and space, and um, and then what 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 system uh, it, it is what what in what form should that that database or data system what 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 would be most effective? Now, the, the, there's a there is a fundamental issue with um, say Bitcoin in its current form. Uh, in that it's the transaction volume is very limited, um, and uh, the latency it's, it's the, the latency for for a properly confirmed transaction is too is too long, much longer than you'd like. So it's not it's actually not great from 
um, transaction volume standpoint or a latency standpoint. Um, uh, so it is perhaps useful as, as to, so, to solve an aspect of the money database problem, uh, which is the sort of store of wealth or an, an accounting of relative obligations, I suppose. Um, but it is not useful as a currency, as a day-to-day -day currency. But people have proposed different technological solutions. Like Lightning. Yeah, Lightning Network and the Layer 2 technologies on top of that. I mean, it's it's all, it seems to be all kind of a trade-off, but the point is, it's kind of brilliant to say that just think about it, information, think about what kind of database, what kind of infrastructure enables that yeah, exchange Yeah, so say like you're operating an economy, um, and you need to have something that it, uh, allows for the efficient, to, to, to have efficient uh, value ratios between products and services. So you've got this massive number of products and services, and you need to, you can't just barter, barter. <laughs> it's like that would be extremely unwieldy. Uh, so you need something that gives you the, the a, 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 a ratio of exchange between goods and services. Um, and, and then something that allows you to uh, shift obligations across time, like debt, debt and equity shift obligations across time. Then what does, what, what does the best job of that? Um, part of the reason why I think there's some um, merit to Dogecoin, even though it was obviously created as a joke, um, is that it it actually does have a much higher uh, transaction volume capability than Bitcoin, um, and the you know the, the the costs of doing a transaction, the 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 Dogecoin fee is is very low. Like right now, if you want to do a Bitcoin transaction, the price of doing that transaction is very high, so you could not use it effectively for most things. Um, and and nor, nor could it even scale to a high volume. Um, uh, and, and when Bitcoin was you know started, I guess around two thousand eight or something like that, um, the internet connections were much worse than they are today, like order of magnitude. Couple, I mean, there's the way way worse, you know, to, in two thousand eight. So, so like having a you know a small uh, block size or whatever is you know and and a long synchronization time is made sense in 2008 but to you know 2021 or fast forward 10 years it, it's like it's it's like comically low you know it's uh so um and i think there's some value to having a linear increase in the amount of currency that uh, is generated um so because some amount of the currency you'd like like if a, if a, if, a, if a currency is too deflationary or like uh, or should say if 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 a, if a currency is expected to increase in value over time you, there's reluctance to spend it because you're like oh I, if i i'll just hold it and not spend it because its scarcity is increasing with time so if i spend it now then i will regret spending it so i will just you know hodl it <laughs> mm -hmm. um but if there's some dilution of the currency occurring over time, that's that's more of an incentive to use it as a currency. So um, Dogecoin, just somewhat randomly, has uh, a um, just a, a fixed a number of, of sort of coins or hash strings that uh, are generated every year. So there's, there's some inflation, but it's not a percentage base. It's, a, it's, it's so the, the, it's a fixed number. So the percentage of inflation will necessarily decline over time. Um, 
so it, it just I, I, I'm not saying that it's like the ideal system for a currency, but I think it actually is uh, just fundamentally better than anything else I've seen, just by accident. Um, so I like how you said um, around 2008. So you're not, uh, you know, some people suggested you might be Satoshi Nakamoto. You've previously said you're not. Let, let no, me I'm ask. Not. You're not for sure. Would you, would, you, would you tell us if you were? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you think it's a feature or a bug that he's anonymous or she or they? It's an interesting kind of quirk of human history that there is a particular technology that is a completely anonymous inventor or creator. Well, I mean, you can you can look at the um, evolution of ideas um, before the launch of Bitcoin and see who wrote, you know, about those ideas. Um, and then, I, like, I don't know exactly. Obviously, I don't know who who created Bitcoin for practical purposes, but the evolution of ideas is is pretty clear before that. And like, it seems as though like Nick Szabo uh, is probably more than anyone else uh, responsible for the evolution of those ideas. So you know, he claims not to be Nakamoto, but I'm not sure that's that's neither here nor there. Uh, but he, he seems to be the one more responsible for the ideas behind Bitcoin than anyone else. So it's not perhaps like singular figures aren't even as important as the, the figures involved in the evolution of ideas that led to a thing. So yeah, yeah it's, you know. Most perhaps it's sad to think about history, but maybe most names will be forgotten anyway. What is a name anyway? It's a name, a name attached to an idea. What does it even mean, really? I think Shakespeare had a thing about roses and stuff. Whatever he said, <laughs> rose by any other name would smell sweet. <laughs> I got Elon to quote Shakespeare. I feel I feel like I accomplished something today. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? <laughs> I'm gonna clip that out. Um, Not more temperate and more fair. <laughs> uh, autopilot, Tesla autopilot. <laughs> um, Tesla autopilot has been through an incredible journey over the past six years, um, or perhaps even longer. In the minds of, in your mind, in the minds of many involved. Uh, yeah, I think that's where we first like. Connected really was the autopilot stuff, uh, yeah. autonomy, and well, it's, the whole journey was incredible to me to watch. I was um, because I knew well. Part of it is I was at MIT, and I, I knew the difficulty of computer vision. Yeah, and I knew the whole. I had a lot of colleagues and friends about the DARPA challenge. I knew how difficult it is, mm -hmm. and so there was a natural skepticism when I first drove a Tesla with uh, the initial system based on Mobileye. Yeah, I thought there's no way. So the first one I, I got in, I thought there's no way this car could maintain, um, like stay in the lane and create a comfortable experience. So my intuition initially was that the lane keeping problem is way too difficult to solve. Oh, and, lane keeping, yeah, that's relatively easy. No, I, well, yeah, but like, uh, but not the, but solve in the way that we just we talked about previous is prototype versus a thing 
that actually creates a pleasant experience over hundreds of thousands of miles sure. and millions. I, yeah, so I, mean, I was we, proven we, we, wrong. We had to wrap quickly. a lot of code around the, the mobile eye thing. It, yes. it doesn't it didn't just work by itself. <laughs> yes, I mean, there's part that's part of the story of how you approach yeah. things sometimes. Sometimes you do things from scratch. Sometimes at first you kind of see what's out there and then you decide to do from scratch. That was one of the boldest decisions I've seen is both on the hardware and the software to decide to eventually go from scratch. I thought, again, I was skeptical of whether that's going to be able to sure. work out because it's such a, such a difficult problem. And so it was an incredible journey. What I see now with um, everything, the hardware, the compute, the sensors, the uh, the things I maybe care and love about most is the uh, the stuff that Andre Karpathy is leading with the data set selection, the whole data engine process, the neural network architectures, the, the way that's in the real world, that network is tested, validated, all the different test sets, um, you know, versus the ImageNet model of computer vision, like what's in academia is like real world artificial intelligence. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and Andre is awesome and obviously plays an important role, but we have a, a lot of really talented people yes. driving things. So, um, and uh, Ashok is actually the, the head of autopilot engineering. Um, uh, uh, Andre is director of AI. AI stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's. I'm aware that there's an incredible team of just a lot going on. Yeah, just uh, yeah. you know, obviously people people will give will give me too much credit, and they will give Andre too much credit. So, and people should realize how much is going on under the yeah. Under the it's just a lot of really talented people. Um, the Tesla Autopilot AI team is extremely talented. It's like some of the smartest people in the world. Um, so yeah, we're getting it done. What are some insights you've gained over those five, six years of autopilot about the problem of autonomous driving? So you leaped in having some sort of uh, first principles kinds of intuitions, but nobody knows how difficult the the problem. Yeah, like the I, th pro I, thought, I thought the self-driving problem would be hard, but it's, it was harder than I thought. It's not like I thought it'd be easy. I thought it'd be very hard, but it was actually way harder than than even that. So, I mean, what it comes down to at the end of the day is to solve self-driving, uh, you have to solve, uh, you, you basically need to recreate um, what, what humans do to drive, which is humans drive with optical sensors, eyes, and biological neural nets. Um, and so in order to, that, that's how the entire road system is designed to work with, with a pa basically passive optical and neural nets, um, it, biologically. Um, and now that we need to, it, so for actually for full self driving to work, we have to recreate that in digital form. Um, so we have to, um, that, that means cameras with uh, advanced uh, neural nets in silicon form. Uh, and, and then you, it will obviously solve for full self driving. That's, that's the only way. I don't think there's any other way. But the question is, what aspects of human nature do you have to encode into the machine, right? So you have to solve the perception problem, like detect, uh, and then you first are, well, realize what is the perception problem for driving, like all the kinds of things you have to be able to see. Like what what do we even look at when we drive? There's, uh, I just recently 
heard Andre talked about at MIT about like car doors. I think it was the world's greatest talk of all time about car doors. Yeah. Um, the the you know the fine details of car doors. Like what what is even an open car door, man? So like the the ontology of that that's the perception problem. We humans solve that perception problem, and Tesla has to solve that problem. And then there's the control and the planning coupled with the perception. You have to figure out like what's involved in driving, like especially in all the different edge cases. Um, and and then the, I mean maybe you can comment on this. How much game theoretic kind of stuff needs to be involved, you know, at a four-way stop sign? You know, our as humans, when we drive, our actions affect the world. Like, sure. it changes how others behave. Most autonomous driving, if you, you're usually just responding um, to the scene, as opposed to like really um, asserting yourself in the scene. Do you think? I think these, so I think I think these these sort of control, control logic conundrums are not are not the hard part. Um, the, you know, let's see. Um, what do you think is the hard part of, in this whole um, beautiful complex problem? So it's a lot of friggin' software, man. A lot of smart lines of code. Um, uh, for sure, in, in order to have. Um, create an accurate vector space. Uh, so like if you, you're, you're coming from image space, which is like this, this flow of um, photons you know, going to the camera, cameras and, <clears throat> and then uh, so you have this massive bit stream um, in, in image space. Uh, and then you have to uh, effectively compress uh, the, a, a, a massive, Bitstream uh, corresponding to photons that knocked off an electron in, in a camera sensor, uh, and and turn that bitstream into into vector space. Um, uh, by by vector space, I mean like uh, you know you've got cars and and humans and uh, lane lines and curves and. Uh, Traffic lights and that kind of thing. Um, wh once you uh, have an accurate vector space, um, the control problem is similar to that of a video game, like a Grand Theft Auto or Cyberpunk. Um, if you have accurate, accurate vector space, it's the control problem is. It's, it, I wouldn't say it's it's trivial. It's not trivial, but it's um, like it, it's 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 a, it's it's not like some insurmountable thing it's just a, it's but, but having an accurate vector space is very difficult yeah i think we humans uh don't give enough respect to how incredible the human perception system is to, to mapping the raw photons to the vector space representation in our heads your brain is doing an incredible amount of processing um and, and giving you an image that is a very cleaned up image. Like when we look around here, we see, like you see color in the corners of your eyes, but actually your eyes have very few uh, uh, cones, like the cone receptors in the peripheral vision. Your, your, your eyes are painting color in the peripheral vision. You don't realize it, but their eyes are actually painting color. And your eyes also have like this blood vessels and all sorts of gnarly things. And there's a blind spot, but do you see your blind spot? No, your, mm -hmm. your, your, your brain is painting in the missing, the blind spot. And you're gonna do these like, see these things online where you look look here and look at this point and, and then look at this point and it's, 
it, if it's in your blind spot, it, it the, your brain will just fill in the the missing bits. So cool. The peripheral vision is so cool. Yeah. It makes you realize all the illusions for vision science. Is so, it makes you realize just how incredible the brain is. The brain is doing a crazy amount of post-processing on the vision signals from your eyes. Um, it's insane. So, um, and, then, and then even once you get all those vision signals, uh, your, your, your brain is constantly trying to, for, to, to forget as much as possible. So human memory is perhaps the weakest thing about the brain is memory. So because memory is so expensive to a brain and so limited, your brain is trying to forget as much as possible and distill the things that you see into uh, the smallest smallest amounts of information possible. So your brain is trying to not just get to a vector space, but get to a vector space that is the smallest possible vector space of only relevant objects. Um, and I think like you, you can sort of look inside your brain or at least you know, I can like when you drive down the road, and and try to think about what your brain is actually doing yeah. consciously, and it's it's consciously it's 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 like you'll see a car that's you could, because you 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 don't have cameras you you don't have eyes in the back of your head or the side you know so you say like but you 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 basically your your head is like a you know you basically have like two cameras on a slow gimbal, um, and and what's your <laughs> And eyesight's not that great. Okay, you and eyes are, you know, like, um, and people are constantly distracted and thinking about things and texting and doing all sorts of things they shouldn't do in a car, changing the radio station. So having arguments, you know, is like, um, so so then like, say like, like, uh, like when's the last time you looked right and left and, you know, or and, and rearward um, or even diagonally, you know, forward to actually refresh your vector space. So you're, you're glancing around and what your mind is doing is is, is trying to distill um, the re relevant vectors, basically objects with a position and motion uh, and, and, and then, and, and then uh, editing that down to the least amount that's necessary for you to drive. It does seem to be able to uh, edit it down or compress it even further into things like concepts. So it's not, it's like it goes beyond, the human mind seems to go sometimes beyond vector space to, to sort of space of concepts to where you, you'll see a thing. It's no longer represented spatially somehow. It's almost like a concept that you should be aware of. Like if this is a, a school zone, you'll remember that yeah. as a concept, which is a weird thing to represent. But perhaps for driving, you don't, need to fully represent those things or maybe you get those kind of um well you, you, you indirectly you need, you need to like establish vector space and then actually have predictions for uh that those vector spaces so like um you know like if uh you know like you drive past say say a a, 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 a bus and the, and you see that there's there's people before you drove past the bus, you saw people crossing like, or some just imagine there's like a, a large truck or something blocking sight. Um, but you, before you came up to the truck, you saw that there were some kids about to cross the road mm -hmm. in front of the truck. Now you can no longer see the kids, but you, you, you need to be able, but you would now know, okay, those kids are probably going to pass by the truck and cross the road, even though you cannot see them. So you have to have, um, memory, uh, you have to need to remember that there were kids there, and you need to have some forward prediction of what their uh, position will be. It's a really hard at problem. The time of relevance. So with, with occlusions, 
in computer vision, when you can't see an object anymore, even when it just walks behind a tree and reappears, that's a really, really, I mean, at least in academic literature, it's tracking through occlusions, it's very difficult. Yeah, we're doing it. Um, I, I understand this. Yeah. <laughs> so some of it- It's like object permanence, like the same thing happens with the humans with neural nets, like if, if, when like a toddler grows up, like there's a, there's a point in time where, uh, they develop, they have a sense of object permanence. So before a certain age, if you have a ball uh, or a toy or whatever, and you put it behind your back and you pop it out, if they don't, before they have object permanence, it's like a new thing every time. It's like, whoa, this toy went poof, disappeared, and now it's back it's again, great. and they can't believe it. And that they can play peekaboo all day yeah. long because yeah. the peekaboo is fresh every time. <laughs> but, uh, but then we figure out object permanence, then they realize, oh no, the, the object is not gone, it's just behind your back. Um, Sometimes I wish we never did figure out <laughs> object, object permanence. permanence. <laughs> yeah, so that's a... Uh, so that's an important problem to solve. Yes, so, so in, in, like an important evolution of the neural nets in the car is uh, um, memory, across, memory across both time and space. Um, so, uh, no, you can't remember, like you have to say, like how long do you want to remember things for? And and it, it there's there's a cost to remembering things for a long time. So you 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 know, like run out of mem memory to if you try to remember too much for too long, um, and and then you also have things that are stale if 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 they're if you remember them for too long. And then you also need things that are mem uh, remembered over time. So even if you like say have like for argument's sake five seconds of memory. Uh, on a time basis, but like let's say you, you you're parked at a light, and you and you saw, you use a pedestrian example that people were waiting to cross the, cross the road, and you can't you can't quite see them because of an occlusion, uh, and but they might wait for a minute before the light changes for, for them to cross the road. You still need to to remember that they, that that's where they were, mm -hmm. um, and that they're probably going to cross the road type of thing. Um, so even if that exceeds your 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 time based memory should not exceed your space memory, and I, uh, I just think the data engine side of that. So getting the data to learn all of the concepts that you're saying now is an incredible process. It's this iterative process of just it's this this hydronet of many hydronet. Yeah, <laughs> we're changing the name to something else. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm sure it'll be uh, equally as yeah. Rick and Morty like. There's okay. a lot of there's, yeah, we've re-architected the, the neural net, uh, the neural nets in the cars so many times, it's crazy. Oh, so every time there's a new major version, you'll rename it to something more ridiculous or uh, or memorable and beautiful, sorry. Not ridiculous, of course. If you, if you see the full the full like uh, array of neural nets that, that, that are operating in the car, it's, it kind of boggles the mind. There's so, it, yeah. there's so many layers, it's crazy. Um, so, yeah, um, but and, and we we started off with uh, simple neural nets that were uh, basically image recognition on a single frame from a single camera, uh, and then uh, trying to knit those together with you know it with uh, C. Uh, I should say we we were really primarily running C here because C plus plus is uh, too much overhead, and we have our own C compiler. So to get maximum performance, we actually wrote, wrote our own C compiler and are continuing to optimize our C compiler uh, for uh, maximum efficiency. In fact, we've just recently uh, done a new rev on, on, our, on our C compiler that'll compile directly to our autopilot hardware. 
Um, so you want to compile the whole thing down and with your own compiler. Yeah, Like so efficiency absolutely. here, because there's all kinds of compute, there's CPU, GPU, there's like yeah. basic types of things, and you have to somehow figure out the scheduling across all of those things. And so you're compiling the code down yeah. that does all, okay. This is, so that's why there's a lot of people involved. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of hardcore uh, software engineering at yeah. a very sort of bare metal level. Because uh, you, you, we're trying to do a lot of compute uh, that's constrained to the, you know, our full self driving computer. So, and we, we want to try to have the highest frames per second um, possible um, with, with, in a sort of very, very finite amount of compute um, and power. So, um, we really put a lot of effort into the efficiency of our compute. Um, and and uh, so there's actually a lot of work done by some very talented software engineers at Tesla that uh, at a at a very foundational level to improve the efficiency of compute and how we use the the, the trip accelerators, uh, which are basically um, dot you know uh, doing matrix math dot dot products uh, like a bazillion dot products. You know, and it's like what 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 are neural nets? It's like compute wise, like ninety nine percent dot products <laughs> so you know um and you want to achieve as many high frame rates like a video game you want yeah full, full resolution frame, high frame rate high frame rate low latency um low jitter uh so um i think one of the things we're um moving towards now is no post-processing of the image through the um uh the image signal processor so um like for, for what happens for cameras is that well, almost all cameras is they um th there's a lot of post processing done in order to make pictures look pretty mm -hmm. uh, and so we don't care about pictures looking pretty um we we, we just want the data we, we so we're we're moving to just raw, raw photon counts so the system will like the image that 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 the computer sees is actually much more than what you'd see if you represented it on a camera wow. it's got much more data uh, and even in very low light conditions you can see that there's a small photon count difference between you know this spot here and that spot there which means that so it it can see in the dark incredibly well um because it can detect these tiny differences in photon counts That's like incredible. like much better than you could possibly imagine um so and and then we also save uh, 13 milliseconds on a latency. Uh, so, um, from removing the post processing in the image. Yes. Yeah. It's like because um, we've got you know eight cameras and and then there's uh, roughly I don't know one and a half milliseconds or so maybe one point six milliseconds of latency um, for each camera and and so it, like uh, um, going to just uh, it, it basically bypassing the uh, image processor uh, gets us back 13 milliseconds of latency, which is important. Um, and, and we track latency all the way from, you know, photon hits the the camera to, you know, all the steps that it's got to go through to get, you know, go through the um, the, the various neural nets and the, the C code. And, uh, the, and there's a little bit of C++ there as well. Um, well, I can maybe a lot, but it, the, the core stuff is, it, the heavy duty computers all in C. Um, and, uh, 
And so, so we track that latency all the way to an output command to the um, drive unit to accelerate uh, the brakes just to slow down the steering, you know, turn left or right. Um, so, because you got to output a command that's got to go to a controller, and like some of these controllers have an update frequency that's maybe uh, ten hertz or something like that, which is slow. That's like now you lose a hundred milliseconds potentially. Hmm. So, um, so then we want to update the the drivers on the like say st steering and braking control to have um, more like uh, 100 hertz instead of 10 hertz, and you get a 10 milliseconds latency instead of 100 milliseconds worst case latency. And and actually j jitter is more of a, a challenge than than, than latency because latency is like you can you can you can anticipate and predict, but if you but if you've got a stack up of things going from the camera to the to the computer through then a series of other computers and finally to an actuator on the the car, mm. if you have a stack up of uh, of tolerances of timing tolerances, then you can have quite a variable latency, which is called jitter, and and that makes it hard to 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 anticipate exactly what how you should turn the car or accelerate because you know if you got maybe 150, 200 milliseconds of jitter, then you could be off by you know up to 0.2 seconds, and this can make this could make a big difference. Uh, so you have to interpolate somehow to to to, to uh, deal with the effects of jitter, so that you, you can make like. Robust well, control decisions. Yeah, then you have to. Uh, so the jitter is in the sensor information, or is it, the jitter can occur at any stage in the pipeline. You can, if if you have just if you have fixed latency, you can anticipate, um, and and uh, like say, okay, we know that uh, our information is, for argument's sake, 150 milliseconds stale. Okay. Uh, like so, for, for um, 150 for argument's sake, 150 milliseconds from. Photon taking camera to um, where you can measure uh, a change in the acceleration of the vehicle. Um, so then, uh, then you can say, okay, well, we're gonna, and to, we, we know it's 150 milliseconds, so we're gonna take that into account and, uh, and and compensate for that latency. However, if if you've got then 150 milliseconds of, of latency plus 100 milliseconds of jitter. That's, which could be anywhere from zero, zero to 100 milliseconds on top. So, so then your latency could be from 150 to 250 milliseconds. Now you've got 100 milliseconds that you don't know what to do with. And, and uh, that's basically random. So getting rid of jitter is extremely important. Hmm. And that affects your control decisions and all those kinds of things. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the car is just going to fundamentally maneuver better with lower jitter. Um, got it. And, and the, 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 the cars will maneuver with superhuman ability and reaction time much faster than a human. I mean, I think over time, the, it, the autopilot full self driving will be capable of maneuvers that, um, you know, uh, you know, are, are far more than what like James Bond could do in like the best movie type of thing. That's exactly what I was imagining in my mind yeah. as you like, said it. Um, it's like an impossible maneuvers that a human couldn't do. You know. So. Well, let me ask. Sort of. Uh, Looking back at the six years, looking out into the future, based on your current understanding, how hard do you think this this full self driving problem? When do you think Tesla will solve level four FSD? I mean, it's looking quite likely that it will be next year. And what does the solution look like? Is it the current pool of FSD beta candidates? They start getting greater and greater as they have been degrees of autonomy, and then there's a certain level beyond which they can they they can do their own they can read a book yeah so uh 
I mean, you can see that anybody who's been following the full self driving beta closely um, will see that the um, the rate of disengagements has been dropping rapidly. So, like a disengagement be where where the driver intervenes to prevent the car from doing something mm -hmm. right. uh, dangerous potentially. So, um, um, so the, the interventions, you know, per million miles has been dropping. Uh, Dramatically, at some point, the and and that trend looks like it, it happens next year. Is that the, the, the probability of an accident on FSD uh, is uh, less than that of the average human, and then and then significantly less than that of the average human. Um, so it certainly appears like we will get there next year. Um, then, then of course, that, that, that then there's going to be a case of okay. Well, we now have to prove this to regulators and prove it to you know. And and we 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 want a standard that is not just equivalent to a human, but uh, much better than the average human. I think it's got to be at least two or three times uh, higher safety than a human. So two or three times lower probability of injury than a human um, before before we would actually say like okay, it's okay to go. It's, it's not going to be equivalent. It's got to be much better. So if you look at uh, ten point uh, FSD. 10.6 just came out recently, 10.7 is on the way, maybe 11 is on the way somewhere in the future. Yeah, um, we, we were hoping to get 11 out this year, but it's, uh, 11 actually has a whole bunch of uh, fundamental rewrites on the neural neural net architecture um, and, and some fundamental improvements uh, in creating vector space. Uh, so, um, so there is a some fundamental like leap that really deserves the eleven. I mean, that's a pretty cool number. Yeah, you know, uh, eleven would be uh, a single stack for all. You know, one stack oh, to rule them stack. all. Um, and uh, <laughs> but it, but there there are just some really fundamental uh, neural net architecture changes that that are that that will allow for uh, much more capability, but but. You know, at, at first they're going to have issues. So, like we have this working on like sort of alpha software, and it's it's good, but it's uh, it's 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 basically taking a whole bunch of C C plus plus code and 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 deleting a massive number, amount of C plus plus code and replacing it with the neural net. And you know, Andre um, makes this point a lot, which is like neural nets are kind of eating software. Mm. You know, over time, there's like less and less conventional software, more and more neural net. Uh, which is still software, but it's you know <laughs> still comes out the lines of software. But uh, let's just more more neural net stuff uh, and less uh, you know heuristics, basically. Um, if if you're if, uh, more 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 uh, matrix based stuff and less uh, heuristics based stuff, um, and. Um, you know, like, for, like, like one of the big changes will be, um, <laughs> like, r right now the neural nets uh, will um, deliver a, a giant bag of points uh, <laughs> to the C plus plus or C and C plus plus code. Yeah, um, we call it the giant bag of points. Yeah, uh, and it's like so you got a pixel and 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 something associated with that pixel. Like this pixel is probably car, this pixel is probably lane line. Um, then you've got to assemble this giant bag of points in the C code and turn it into uh, vectors. 
Um, and uh, it does a pretty good job of it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, we, we want to just, we need another layer of neural nets on top of that to take the, the giant bag of points and distill that down to a vector space in the, in the neural net part of the software as opposed to the heuristics uh, part Got of the it. software. This is a big improvement. Um, neural nets all the way down is what you want. It, it's not even neural, all neural nets, <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, this will be just a, this is a game changer to not have the bag of points, <laughs> the giant bag of points that has to be assembled with um, many lines of C++ uh, and, and have the, and have a neural net just assemble those into vectors. So, so that the, the neural net is outputting um, much, much less data. It's, it's, it's outputting this, this is a lane line, this is a curb, this is drivable space, this is a car, this is a, 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 you know, a pedestrian or a cyclist or something like that. It's outputting, um, it's, re it's really out outputting um, prop proper vectors to the, the CC++ control, control code as opposed to the, the sort of constructing the, the vectors uh, in, in C. Um, which we've done, I think, quite a good job of, but it, it's it's a it, we're kind of hitting a local maximum on the how well the C can do this. Um, so this is this is really this is really a big deal, and and just all of the networks in the car need need to move to surround video. There's still some legacy networks that are not uh, surround video, um, and all of the training needs to move to surround video, and the efficiency of the training uh, needs to get better, and it is. Uh, and then we need to move everything to uh, raw uh, photon uh, counts as opposed to um, processed images. Okay, so few... which, is, which is quite a big reset on the training because the system's trained on post-processed image, images. So we need to redo all the training uh, to train against the, the raw photon counts instead of the post-processed image. So ultimately, it's kind of reducing the complexity of the whole thing. So uh, reducing, yeah. reducing lines of code will actually go go lower. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so you're doing fusion of all the sensors, so reducing the complexity of having to deal with these fusion of the cameras. Is, uh, uh, sorry, cameras really right? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> same with humans. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we got ears too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll actually need to incorporate um, sound as well because um, you know you need to like listen for ambulance sirens right. or, you know, fire trucks, you know, uh, or if somebody like, you know, yelling at you or something, I don't know, just there's, there's a little bit of audio that needs to be incorporated as well. Do you need to go back to break? Yeah, let's, sure, let's take a break. Okay. Honestly, frankly, like the ideas are, are the easy thing and the implementation is the hard thing. Like the idea of going to the moon is is the easy part, but yeah. going to the moon is the hard part. It's the hard part. Um, and there's a lot of like hardcore engineering that's gotta get done at the hardware and software level. Uh, like I said, optimizing the C compiler and the, just, you know, uh, cutting out latency everywhere. It, like this is, if we don't do this, the system it will not work properly. Um, so the work of the engineers doing this they are like the unsung heroes to some, you know, but they are cr critical to the success of the situation. I think you made it clear. I mean, at least to me, it's super exciting, everything that's going on outside of what Andre is doing. Yeah. Just the whole infrastructure of the software. I, I mean, everything is going on with Data Engine, uh, whatever whatever it's called. 
the whole process is is just yeah, a work of art the, to me. The, the sheer scale of it is is boggles the mind. Like the training, the amount of work done with the, like we've written all this custom software for training and labeling, mm -hmm. um, and to do auto labeling. Auto labeling is essential because um, especially when you've got like surround video, it's very difficult to, to like label surround video from scratch is extremely difficult. Um, like take a human's such a long time to even label one video clip, like several hours. Hmm. Uh, or the order label, it, it basically we just apply a heavy, like heavy duty, uh, like a lot of compute to the, to the video clips um, to pre-assign and guess what all the things are that are going on in the surround video. And then there's like correcting it. Yeah, kind of and then, the, then all the human has to do is like tweet, like say, the, you know, adjust what is incorrect. This this is like increase in, increases productivity by effect a hundred or, or more. Yeah. Uh, so you've presented Tesla Bot as primarily useful in the factory. First of all, I think humanoid robots are incredible. From a, a fan of robotics, I think uh, the elegance of movement that human um, that hu humanoid robots, that bipedal robots show are just so cool. So it's uh, really interesting that you're working on this and also talking about applying the same kind of all the ideas of some of which we've talked about with data engine, all the things that we're talking about with Tesla Autopilot, just uh, transferring that over to the, just yet another robotics problem. I have to ask, since I care about human robot interaction, so the human side of that, so you've talked about mostly in the factory, do you see it uh, also, do you see part of this problem that Tesla Bot has to solve is interacting with humans and potentially having a place like in the home? So interacting, sure. not just sure. uh, not replacing labor, but also like, I don't know, well, uh, I think being a friend or, or an assistant. Yeah, yeah. Or something I, I, th like that. I think the, the possibilities are, you know, endless. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's obviously like a, it's not quite in, in Tesla's primary mission direction of accelerating sustainable energy, but uh, it is a, an extremely useful thing that we can do for the world, which is to make a useful humanoid robot um, that is capable of interacting the, with the world and um, helping in in many different ways. Uh, so, so in, in factories and and really just just I mean I think if you say like uh, extrapolate to you know many years in the future, it's like I, I think uh, work will become optional. So. Like there's a lot of jobs that, if you if people weren't paid to do it, they they wouldn't do it. Like it's not it's not fun, you know, necessarily. Like if you're washing dishes all day, it's like, eh, you know, even if you really like washing dishes, you really want to do it for eight hours a day every day. Uh, probably not. So, um, and then there's like dangerous work, and basically, if it's dangerous, boring, uh, it has like p potential for repetitive stress in injury, that kind of thing. Um, then that's really where humanoid robots would add the most value initially. Um, so that's what we're aiming for is is to um, for for the humanoid robots to do, do jobs that people don't don't voluntarily want to do. Um, and and then that, we'll have to pair that obviously with some kind of universal basic basic income in the future. Uh, so I think. Um, do you see a world when there's like hundreds of millions of Tesla bots doing different, performing different tasks throughout the world? Yeah, I haven't really thought about it that far into the future, but I, th I guess that there may be something like that. Um, so. Can I ask a wild question? 
So the the number of Tesla cars has been accelerating. There's been I mean, close to two million produced. Many of them have autopilot. I think we're over two million now. Do you think there will ever be a time when there will be more Tesla bots than Tesla cars? Yeah, I, 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 you know, actually, it's funny you ask this question because not, normally I do try to think pretty far into the future, but I haven't really thought that far into the future with the with the Tesla bot or it's codenamed Optimus. I call it, I call it Optimus Subprime. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it's not it's not like a giant, you know, transformer robot. Um so uh but it's meant to be a general purpose help help robot. Um and and basically like like the things that we're basically like like Tesla I think um is the has the most advanced real world AI. Uh, for interacting with the real world, which we developed as a function of to to make self driving work, um, and so along with custom hardware and uh, like a lot of you know uh, hardcore low level software to have it run efficiently and be you know power efficient because, because you know it's one thing to do neural nets if you've got a gigantic server room with ten thousand computers, but now let's say you just you have to now distill that down into one computer that's running at low power in a humanoid robot or a car. Um, that's actually very difficult. A lot of hardcore software work is required for that. Um, so, so since we're kind of like solving the nav navigate the real world with neural nets problem for cars, which are kind of like robots with four wheels, then it's like kind of a natural extension of that is to put it in a robot with arms and legs uh, and actu you know, actuators. Um, so. Um, like like the, the the two like hard things are like you you basically need to make the have the robot be intelligent enough to interact in a sensible way with the environment. Um, so you need real real world AI, and you need to be very good at um, manufacturing, which is a very hard problem. Tesla is very good at manufacturing, and also uh, has the real world AI. So making the humanoid robot work is. Uh, basically, it means developing custom uh, motors and sensors uh, that that are different from what a car would use. Um, but we, we've we're also we have, a, a, um, I think we have the, the 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 best expertise in developing advanced electric motors and power electronics. So it, it just has to be for a humanoid robot application, not a car. Still, you do talk about love sometimes. So let me ask, this isn't like for like sex robots or something I like that. I love it's the answer. Yes. Uh, there is something compelling to us, not compelling, but we connect with uh, humanoid robots or even legged robots, like with a dog and shapes of dogs. It just, it seems like, you know, there's a huge amount of loneliness in this world. All of us seek companionship and with other humans, friendship, and all those kinds of things. We have a lot of here in Austin. A lot of people have dogs. Sure, um, there seems to be a huge opportunity to also have robots that decrease the uh, the the amount of loneliness in the world, or help us humans connect with each with each other. So, in a way that dogs can. Um, do you think about that with Testabot at all, or is it really focused on the problem of? of performing specific tasks, not connecting with humans. 
Um, I mean, to be, to be honest, I have not actually thought about it from the companionship standpoint, but I think it actually would end up being, it, it could be actually a very good companion. Um, and uh, it, it could, it, you develop like a personality uh, over time that is that is like unique. Like, uh, you know, it's not like they're just all the robots are the same. And that personality could evolve to be, you know, uh, match match the 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 owner or the you know whoever, I guess the owner uh, well uh, whatever you same, want to call it uh, the other <laughs> the companion the other the half being. right uh, the, in the same way that friends do see I think that's yeah. a huge opportunity I think yeah I, no that's interesting I, I, like um, the because you know like there's a, a Japanese phrase I like the uh, wabi sabi you know uh, the subtle imperfections are what makes something special. Yeah. And the subtle imperfections of the personality of the robot mapped to the subtle imperfections of the robot's human friend. <laughs> I don't know. Owner sounds like maybe the wrong word, but mm -hmm. um, could actually make an incredible buddy, basically. In, in that way, the imperfections... Like R2-D2 or like a right. C-3PO sort of thing, you know? So from a machine learning perspective, I think the flaws being a feature is really nice. You could be quite terrible at being a robot for quite a while in the general home environment or all the, in the general world. And that's kind of adorable. And that's like, those are your flaws and you fall yeah. in love with those flaws. So it's, it's, a, yeah, so it's very much. different than autonomous driving where it's a very high stakes environment you cannot mess sure. up. And so it's, yeah. yeah, it's more fun to be a robot in the home. <laughs> yeah, in fact, if you think of like uh, C-3PO and R2-D2, yeah. like they actually had a lot of like flaws and imperfections and yeah. silly things and they would argue with each other. <laughs> and- um, Were they actually good at doing anything? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. I, they definitely added a lot to the story. Um, <laughs> but but, but there's, there's sort of quirky elements and, you know, that they would like make mistakes and do things. Like it was like, uh, it made them relatable, I don't know. Um, enduring so so yeah i think that that could be something that uh, pr probably would happen um but our, our initial focus is just to make it useful uh so that, so um i'm confident we'll get it done i'm not sure what the exact time frame is but uh like we'll probably have i don't know a decent prototype towards the end of next year or something like that and it's cool that it's connected to tesla the car the, so, so like yeah, it's it's, it's using a lot of you know it it would use the autopilot inference computer and um, a lot of the training that we've done for the f for cars in terms of recognizing real world things could be applied directly to the to the robot. Um, so it but but there's there's a lot of custom actuators and sensors that need to be developed, mm -hmm. and an extra module on top of the vector space uh, for love. No, uh, yeah, that's me saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay we can uh, add that to the car too that's true um that yeah, could be useful in all environments like you said a lot of people argue in the car so maybe we can help them out uh you're a student of history fan of dan carlin's hardcore history podcast yeah it's great greatest podcast ever yeah i think it is actually <laughs> I, I, I it doesn't it almost doesn't really count as a podcast yeah it's, it's, not, so it's, good. it's, it's more like a audiobook yeah. So you were on the podcast with Dan. I just had a chat with him about it. 
He said, you guys want military and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, it's literally, uh, it was basically, um, uh, I th- the, the, it should be titled Engineer Wars. Uh, essentially, like, like when there's a rapid change in the rate of technology, then uh, engineering plays a pivotal role in, in victory and battle. Um, do you so, get, how far in, back in history did you go? Did you go World War II? Uh, it was you... mostly, well, it was supposed to be a deep dive on fighters and bomber uh, technology in World War II, um, but that ended up being more wide-ranging than that, because yeah. um, I just went down the a total rat hole of, like, studying all of the, the fighters and bombers of World War II and, and, like, the constant rock, paper, scissors game that, like, you know, uh, one country would make this plane, then it'd make a plane to beat that, and that pl- try to make a plane to beat that, and then they'll do <laughs> And really what matters is like the, the pace of innovation um, and also access to high quality uh, fuel and uh, raw materials. So like Germany had like some amazing designs, but they couldn't make them uh, because they couldn't get the raw materials. Uh, and uh, they, they had a real problem with the oil and, and, and uh, fuel, basically. The fuel quality was extremely uh, variable. So the design wasn't the bottleneck? It was- uh, the, Yeah, like the, the US had kick-ass fuel. Uh, that was like very consistent. Like the problem is if, if you make a very high performance aircraft engine, um, in order to make it high performance, you have to, um, the, 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 the fuel, the, the aviation gas uh, has to be a consistent mixture and uh, uh, it, it has to have a high, high octane. Um, like high octane is the most important thing, but also can't have like impurities and stuff because uh, you'll, you'll foul up the engine. And, and and Germany just never had good access to oil. Like they tried to get it by invading the Caucasus, mm-hmm. um, but that didn't work too well. <laughs> that never work. works well. Work out for them. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice to meet you. So they're, they're always just, Germany was always struggling with shit, with basically shitty oil, mm-hmm. um, and so then they could not uh, they they couldn't count on a on high quality fuel for their aircraft. So then they had to add all have all these additives and and stuff. Uh, so. Um, uh, whereas the U.S. had awesome fuel, um, and that provided that to Britain as well. Um, so that allowed the British and the Americans to design uh, aircraft engines that were uh, super high performance, better than anything else in the world. And Germany, Germany could, could could design the engines; they just didn't have the fuel, uh, and then also the like so the the uh, the quality of the aluminum alloys that they were getting was also not that great. And so, yeah. Did you? Is this like uh, you talked about all this with Dan? Yeah. Awesome. Broadly looking at history, when you look at Genghis Khan, when you look at Stalin, Hitler, the darkest moments of human history, uh, what do you take away from those moments? Does it help you gain insight about human nature, about human behavior today? Whether it's the wars or the individuals or just the behavior of people, any aspects of history? Yeah, I find history fascinating. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of incredible things that have been done, good and bad, um, that they help you just help you understand the nature of civilization um, and individuals. And does it make you sad that humans do these kinds of things to each other? You look at the 20th century, World War Two the cruelty, the abuse of power. Talk about communism, Marxism, and Stalin. Um, 
I mean, some of these things do, I mean, if, if you, if, like there's a lot of human history, um, mo- most of it is uh, actually people just getting on with their lives, uh, you know, and, and it's not like human history is just uh, what nonstop war and disaster. It's, it's, th- those are actually just, th- those are intermittent and rare. And if they weren't, then, the, you know, humans would soon cease to exist. Um, uh, but it, it, it's just that wars tend to be written about a lot. And whereas like uh, something being like, well, a, no, a normal year where nothing major happened was doesn't get written about much. But that's, you know, most people just like farming and kind of like living their life, you know, um, being a villager <laughs> somewhere. Um, and every now and again, there's a war and I think so. Um, And um, yeah, but I have to say, like, the, 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 there aren't very many books that I where, where I just had to stop reading because it was just too too dark. But uh, the book about Stalin, the Court of the Red Czar, I had, could I had to stop reading. It was just too too bad, dark, rough. Yeah, um, the thirties. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of lessons there to me, in particular that. It feels like humans, like all of us have that, it's the old Solzhenitsyn line, um, that the line between good and evil runs to the heart of every man, that all of us are capable of evil, all of us are capable of good. It's almost like this kind of responsibility that um, all of us have to, to, to tend towards the good. And so like to me, looking at history is almost like an example of, look, you have some charismatic leader that uh, convinces you of things is too easy based on that story to do evil onto each other, onto your family, onto others. And so it's like our responsibility to do good. Uh, it's not like now is somehow different from history. That can happen again, all of it can happen again. And yes, most of the time, you're right. I mean, the optimistic view here is mostly people are just living life. And as you've often memed about uh, the quality of life was way worse back in the day and it keeps improving over time through innovation, through technology. But still, it's somehow notable that these blimps of atrocities happen. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, life was really tough <laughs> for most of history. Uh, I mean, really for most of human history, um, a good year would be one where not that many people in your village died of the plague starvation, freezing to death, or being killed by a neighboring village. <laughs> it's like, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, it was only like, you know, we lost 5% this year. That was, uh, yeah. it was a good year. <laughs> you know, that would be par for the course. Yeah. Like just, just not starving to death would have been uh, like the primary goal of most people in through, throughout history, is making sure we'll have enough food to last through the winter and not get in our freeze or whatever. So, um. Now food is is plentiful. I have an obesity problem, um, you know. So, well, yeah. The lesson there is to be grateful for the way things are now. For for some of us, we've spoken about this offline. I'd love to get your thought about it here. If I sat down for a long form in person conversation with the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, would you potentially want to call in for a few minutes? Uh, to join in on a conversation with him, moderated and translated by me. Sure, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to do that. 
you've shown interest in the Russian language. Is this grounded in your interest in history of linguistics, culture, general curiosity? I think it sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> sounds cool, not looks cool. So, it's, uh, well, it's it's you know it's it's a, it's a it takes a moment to read Cyrillic. <laughs> um, once you know what the Cyrillic characters stand for, actually, then reading Russian becomes a lot easier because there are a lot of words that are actually the same. Like bank is bank. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> so find the words that ex are exactly the same, and now you start to understand Cyrillic. Yeah. If, okay, if you yeah, can, bond. if you if you can sound it out, then yeah, yeah. Uh, the, it, it's much. There's at least some commonality of words. What about the culture? You uh, you love great engineering, physics. There's a tradition of the sciences there. Sure. So if you look at the 20th century from rocketry. So, you know, some of the greatest rockets, some of the space exploration has been done in the Soviet, in the former Soviet Union. Yeah. So do you draw inspiration from that history? Just how this culture that in many ways, I mean, one of the sad things is because of the language, a lot of it is lost to history because it's not translated, all those kinds of, because it, it is in some ways an isolated culture. It, it flourishes within its within its borders. Um, yeah. So, do you draw inspiration from those folks from from the history of yeah, science um, engineering there? I mean, the Soviet Union, Russia, and um, Ukraine as well, and uh, have a, a really strong history in space flight. Like some of the most advanced and impressive things in history were done. Uh, uh, you know, uh, by the Soviet Union. Um, so, um, one can cannot help but admire the impressive rocket technology that was developed. Um, I, I, you know, after the sort of fall of the Soviet Union, the, the there's the, the there's much less that 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 happened. Um, but uh, still, things are happening, but it's not not quite at the um, frenetic pace that was happening uh, before the Soviet Union kind of uh, dissolved into separate republics. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, there's Roscosmos, the Russian uh, agency. I, um, I look forward to a time when those countries with China are working together. Uh, you, the United States are all working together. Maybe a little bit of friendly competition, but... I think friendly competition is good. Um, you know, governments are slow, and the only thing slower than one government is a collection of governments. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the Olympics would be boring if everyone just crossed the finishing line at the same time. Yeah, nobody would watch. Yeah, uh, and and people wouldn't try hard to r run fast and stuff. So, I think friendly competition is a good thing. Uh, this is also a good place to give a shout out to a video titled "The Entire Soviet Rocket Engine Family Tree" by Tim Dodd, aka Everyday Astronaut. It's like an hour and a half. It gives a full history of uh, Soviet rockets, mm -hmm. and people should definitely go check out and support Tim in general. That guy yeah. is super excited about the future. Super ex excited about spaceflight. Every time I see anything by him, I just have a stupid smile on my face because he's so excited about stuff. Yeah, I love people. Tim like Dodd that. is uh, really, really great. If you're interested in anything to do with space. Um, He's in terms of uh, explaining rocket technology to your average person. He's awesome, the best, I'd say. Um, and um, I should say, like the part of the reason, like uh, I, I switched us from like Raptor at one point was going to be a hydrogen engine, um, 
but but hydrogen has a lot of challenges. It's very low density. It's a de- it's a deep cryogen, so it's only liquid at a very you know very close to absolute zero. It requires a lot of insulation. It's um, so there's it, it, a lot of, a lot of challenges there. Um, and um, and I was actually reading a bit about uh, Russian rocket engine development, and um, at least the impression I had was that that, that uh, or, or Soviet Union, Russia, and Ukraine uh, primarily were. Uh, actually, in the process of uh, switching to meth- methalox, um, and there were some interesting test and data for ISP. Like they were able to get like up to like a three hundred eighty second ISP with a methalox engine, and I was like, "Whoa, okay, that's that's actually really impressive." So, um, so I, I think we could you could actually get. Um, a much lower cost, like in optimizing cost per ton to orbit, cost per ton to Mars. Um, it, it's, uh, I, th- I think, um, methane oxygen is the way to go. Um, and I was partly inspired by the Russian work on the test stands uh, with methalox engines. And now for something completely different. Do you mind doing a, uh, a bit of a meme review in the spirit of the great, the powerful PewDiePie? Let's say one to 11, just go over a few documents printed out. We can try. Let's try this. I present to you document numero uno. (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) okay. Vlad the Impaler discovers marshmallows. Yeah, that's not bad. So, you get it because uh, he yes, likes hailing things. Yes, I get. It. I don't know three, whatever. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's not very good. <laughs> this is um, grounded in some engineering, some history. <laughs> uh, yeah, give us an eight out of ten. What do you think about nuclear power? Uh, I'm in favor of nuclear power. I think it's. Uh, In a place that is not subject to extreme natural disasters, I think it's a nuclear power is a great way to generate uh, electricity. Um, I I, I don't think we should be shutting down nuclear power stations. Yeah, but what about Chernobyl? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, uh, I I think people there's like a lot of fear of radiation and stuff, um, and it's I, I guess what. The problem is like a lot of people just don't understand, they, they didn't study engineering or physics. So they don't, it's just the word radiation just sounds scary, you know, so they don't, they ha- they can't calibrate what radiation means. Um, but radiation is much less dangerous than, than, than you'd think. Um, so, um, like for example, Fukushima, you know, um, when the Fukushima uh, problem happened uh, due to the tsunami, the I, I got people in California asking me if, if they should worry about radiation from Fukushima, and I'm like, definitely not, not even slightly, not at all. That is crazy. Um, and just to show, like, look, this is how. Like the danger is, is, is so much overplayed compared to what what it really is. That I actually flew to Fukushima, and I actually I, I donated a, a a solar power system for a water treatment plant, 
and uh, and and I made a point of eating locally grown vegetables um, on TV in Fukushima. Like, I'm still alive. Okay. <laughs> so it's not even that the risk of these events is low, but the impact of them is-, is The in uh, impact is greatly exaggerated. It's, it's just- It's great. human nature. <laughs> it's people, people don't know what radiation is. Like I've had people ask me like, what about radiation from cell phones causing, causing brain cancer? I'm like, when you say radiation, do you mean photons or particles? Then like, then I don't know what, what, what do you mean photons, particles? So do you mean, uh, if, if, let's say photons, what, what, what frequency or wavelength? And they're like, no, I have no idea. Um, like, do you know that everything's radiating all the time? Like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, everything's radiating all the time. <laughs> Photons are being emitted by, by all objects all the time, basically. So, um, and if you wanna know what, it's, it's, what, what it means to stand in front of nuclear fire, go outside. The sun is a gigantic, you know, thermonuclear re reactor. You're staring right at it. Yeah. Are you still alive? Yes. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I guess radiation is one of the words that can be used as uh, as a tool to to, to fear monger by certain people. That's it. And I think people just don't don't understand. So I mean, that's the way to fight that uh, that fear, I suppose, is to understand, is to learn. Yeah, just say like, okay, how many people have actually died from nuclear accidents? It's yes. like practically nothing. And uh, say how many people have have died from you know coal plants, and it's a very big number. So, like, obviously, we should not be starting up coal plants and shutting down nuclear plants. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Coal plants, like, I don't know, a hundred to a thousand times worse for for health than nuclear power plants. Uh, you want to go to the next one? It's really bad. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, that uh, ninety, one hundred eighty, and three hundred sixty degrees. Everybody loves the math. Nobody gives a shit about two seventy. It's not super funny. Yeah, I don't know, like two or three. Yeah. Um, this is not, uh, you know, LOL situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, That's pretty good. The United States oscillating between establishing and destroying dictatorships. It's like a metro. Is that a metro? Yeah. What is metronome. that? Metronome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, out of seven out of ten. It's kind of true. Oh yeah. This is uh, this is kind of personal for me. Next one. <laughs> oh man, is this Leica? Yeah. Well, no, this is or it's like referring to Leica or something. As Leica's, uh, like, uh, uh, husband. Husband. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Yes, this is dog. Your wife was launched to space, <laughs> and then the last one is him with his eyes closed and a bottle of vodka. Yeah, Leica didn't come back. No, uh, they don't tell you the full story of you know what what the love the impact they had on the loved ones. <laughs> True. That one gets an eleven for me. Just sure. For the Soviet Let's shutout. Oh yeah, this keeps going on the Russian theme. <laughs> first man in space, nobody cares. First man on the moon. Well, cares. I think people do care. No, I know, but um, uh, there I mean, is Yuri Gagarin's names will, will 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 be forever in history. I think there is something special about placing, like, stepping foot onto another sure. totally foreign land. It's it's not the journey, like. Uh, people that explore the oceans. It's not as important to explore the oceans as to land on a whole new continent. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is about you. <laughs> oh yeah, I'd love to get your comment on this. Elon Musk, after sending $6.6 .6 billion to the UN to end world hunger, you have three hours. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, $6 billion is not going to end world hunger. So, <laughs> um, so I mean, the reality is at this point, the world is producing uh, far more food than it can really consume. Like, we don't have a caloric uh, constraint at this point. So where there is hunger, it is uh, almost always due to... Um, it's like like civil war or strife or some like um it, it's 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 not a thing that is it, it, it's extremely rare for it to be just a, a matter of like lack lack of money it's like you know it's like some there's a civil war in some some country and and like one part of the country is literally trying to starve the other part of the country um so it's much more complex than something that money could solve it's politics it's geopolitics it's it's a lot of things it's human nature it's governments it's money's monetary systems all that kind of stuff yeah f food is extremely cheap uh, right. these days it's like it's um i mean the u.s at this point um you know among low-income families obesity is, is actually another problem it's not like obviously it's, it's not hunger it's, it's like too much you know too many calories uh so uh, it's not that nobody's hungry hungry anywhere it's just it's just this is uh not not a simple matter of adding money and solving it hmm. what do you think that one gets just kidding <laughs> uh, two <laughs> <laughs> just going after empires world uh where did you get those artifacts the british museum <laughs> yeah. shout out to monty python we found them <laughs> yeah the british, uh, the british museum is it's pretty great. I mean, yeah. it, it, admittedly, Britain did take uh, these historical artifacts from all around the world and put them in London. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's not like people can't go see them. Uh, so it is a, a convenient place to see these uh, ancient artifacts is, is London for, you know, for, for a large segment of the world. So I think, you know, on balance, the British Museum is a net good. Although I'm sure that a lot of countries would argue about that. Yeah. It's like you want to make these historical artifacts accessible to as many people as possible. And the British Museum, uh, I think, does a good job of that. Even if there's a darker aspect to like the history of empire in general, whatever the empire is, however things were done, it's, it is the history that happened. You can't sort of erase that history, unfortunately. You could just become better in the future. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, how, how are we going to pass moral judgment on, on these these things like it's like if uh you know uh if, if one is going to judge say the british empire you're going to judge you know what everyone was doing at the time and how were the british relative to everyone um and i think they would british would actually get like a relatively good grade relatively good grade not in absolute terms but compared to what everyone else was doing um it, they were not the worst like I said, you got to look at these things in the context of the, of the history at the time, um, and say what were, what were the alternatives, and what are you comparing it against? Yes. And I I I do not think it would be the case that uh, um, Britain would get a uh, a bad grade in in when looking at history at the time. You know, if you judge history from you know from what is morally acceptable today. You're basically going to give everyone a failing grade. Yeah, I'm, I'm not clear. It's not. I don't think anyone would get a passing grade um, in in their morality uh, of like you go back 300 years ago. Like who who's getting a passing grade? <laughs> basically, no one. And we might not get a passing grade from generations yeah, exactly. that uh, that come after us. 
uh what, what does that one get uh <laughs> sure uh six uh seven six. From, for the monty python maybe i always love monty python they're great uh the life of brian and the quest of the holy grail are incredible yeah 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 those serious eyebrows <laughs> brajnev like you know, how important damn. do you think is facial hair to to great leadership <laughs> well you got a new haircut is that is that is it does how does that affect your leadership <laughs> I, I, I don't know hopefully not it doesn't um yeah, the second is no one. <laughs> there is no one competing with Brezhnev. No, no one too. Those are like epic eyebrows. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's uh, ridiculous. Give it a six or seven, I don't know. Uh, I like this, like, Shakespearean analysis of memes. Uh, Brezhnev, he had, a, he had a flair for drama as well. Like, you know, <laughs> showmanship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It must come from the eyebrows. All right. Um, invention. Great engineering. Look what I invented. <laughs> yeah. That's the best thing since ripped up bread. Yeah. Because they invented <laughs> They're just... sliced bread. Am I just explaining memes at this point? <laughs> 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 this is what my life has become. Um, He's a meme or a oh, meme explainer. Like a scribe that like runs around with the kings and just like writes down memes. I mean, when was the cheeseburger invented? That's like an epic invention. Yeah. Like, like wow. You know, <laughs> that versus, was... Versus just like a burger? Or, or a burger. Bag. I guess a burger in general is, yeah. is like, you know... Um, then there's like, what is a burger? What's, what's a sandwich? And then you start getting, yeah. is a pizza sandwich? And what is the original? It's it's It gets into an ontology argument. Yeah, but everybody knows like if you order like a burger or cheeseburger or whatever, and you like, you get like, you know, tomato and some lettuce and onions and whatever, and you know mayo and ketchup and mustard it's like epic um, yeah but i'm sure they've had <laughs> bread and meat separately for a long time and it was kind of a burger on the same plate but somebody who actually combined them into the, the same thing and yeah. you bite it and hold it make makes it convenient it's a materials problem like yeah. your hands don't get dirty and whatever yeah it's brilliant well that is not what i would have guessed but everyone knows, like you, 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 like you, if you order a cheeseburger, you know what you're getting. You know, it's not like some ob obtuse. Like, well, I wonder what I'll get. You know, yeah. um, you know, uh, fries are. I mean, great. I mean, they're the devil, but fries are awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, pizza is incredible. Um, food innovation doesn't get enough love. Yeah, I guess is what we're getting at. <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> Uh, what, what about the uh, Matthew McConaughey Austinite here? Uh, President Kennedy, do you know how to put men on the moon yet? NASA, no. <laughs> President Kennedy, be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Sure. Six, six or seven, I suppose. All right. <laughs> and this is the last one. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Someone drew a bunch of <laughs> dicks all over the walls, Sistine Chapel, boys' bathroom. Sure, I'll give it a nine. It's super. It's really true. <laughs> All right, this is like, our highest ranking meme for today. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, how do they get away with that? <laughs> Lots of nakedness. I mean, uh, dick pics are. Uh, I mean, just something throughout history. Uh, as long as people can draw things, there's been yeah. a dick pic. It's it's a staple of human history. It's a staple, <laughs> consistent throughout human history. You you tweeted that you aspire to comedy. You're friends with Joe Rogan. Might you uh, do a short stand-up comedy set at some point in the future? Maybe um, open for Joe, something like that. Is that is that really stand-up? Actual, just full-on stand-up. Full-on stand-up. Is that in there, or is that? Are... I've never thought about that. 
Um, it's extremely difficult if, uh, at least that's what the, the, like Joe says and the comedians say. Huh, I wonder if I could. Um, I mean, only I, one I, way I, to find out. You know, I, I have done stand-up for friends, just uh, impromptu, you know, I'll get get on like a roof uh, and they they do laugh, but they're friends too. So I don't know if, if you got to call, you know, like a room of strangers, are they going to actually also find it funny? But I could try, <laughs> see what happens. I think you'd learn something either way. Um, yeah. I kind of love... Um, both the when you bomb and when when you do great, just watching people how they deal with it, sure. it's, it's, it's so difficult. It's so you're so fragile up there. It's just you, and you you think you're going to be funny, and when it completely falls flat, it's just it's beautiful to see people deal with like that. Uh, I, think I might have enough material to do stand. <laughs> no, no, I've never thought about it, but I might have enough material. Um, I don't know, like fifteen minutes or something. Oh yeah. Yeah, do do a Netflix special. <laughs> Netflix special, <laughs> sure. Um, what's your favorite Rick and Morty concept? Uh, just to spring that on you, is there? There's a lot of sort of scientific engineering ideas explored there. There's the <laughs> favorite. The, there's the butter robot. It's, it's, there's it's a great. The, uh, yeah, it's a great show. You like um, it? Yeah, Rick and Morty's awesome. Somebody that's exactly like you from an alternate dimension showed up there. Elon Tusk. Yeah, that's right. That, that you voiced. Yeah. Rick and Morty certainly explores a lot of interesting concepts. Uh, so like, what's the favorite one? I know the, the, the butter robot certainly is, uh, you know, it's like, it, it's certainly possible to have too much sentience in a device. Um, like you don't want to have your toaster be like a, a super genius toaster. It's going to hate, hate life because all it could just make is toast. But if, you know, it's like, you don't want to have like super intelligence stuck in a, a very limited device. Um, do you think it's too easy from a, if we're talking about from the engineering perspective of super intelligence, like with Marvin, the robot, like, is it, it seems like it might be very easy to engineer just a depressed robot. Like it, sure. it, it's not obvious to engineer a robot that's going to find a fulfilling existence. Same as humans, I suppose. But um, I wonder if that's like the default. If you don't do a good job on building a robot, it's going to be sad a lot. Well, we can reprogram robots easier than we can reprogram humans. So I, I guess if you let it evolve without tinkering, then it might get uh, sad. Uh, but you can change the optimization function and have it be a cheery robot. <laughs> you, uh, like I mentioned with, with SpaceX, you give a lot of people hope and a lot of people look up to you. Millions of people look up to you. Uh, if we think about young people, in high school, maybe in college, um, what advice would you give to them about if they want to try to do something big in this world, they want to really have a big positive impact, what advice would you give them about their career, maybe about life in general? Try to be useful. Um, you know, Do things that are useful to your fellow human beings, to the world. It's very hard to be useful. Um, very hard. Um, you know, are you, are you contributing more than you consume? You know, like, uh, like, can you try to have a positive net contribution to society? Um, I think that's the thing to aim for. You know, not not to try to be sort of a leader for just for the sake of being a leader or whatever. Um, 
a lot of time people who, who the, 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 a lot of time the, pe the people you want as leaders are, are the people who don't want to be leaders. <laughs> so, um, if you can live a, a useful life, that is a good life, a life worth having lived. Um, you know, and, and I, like I said, I would, I would, I would encourage people to uh, use the, the mental tools of physics and apply them broadly in life. They are the best tools. When you think about education and self-education, what do you recommend? So there's the university, there's uh, self-study, there is uh, hands-on sort of finding a company or a place or a set of people that do the thing you're passionate about and joining them as early as possible. Um, there's uh, taking a road trip across Europe for a few years and writing some poetry. Which uh, which which trajectory do you suggest? For, in terms of learning about how you can become useful, as you mentioned, how you can have the most positive impact. Well, I, I encourage people to read a lot of books. Mm. Just read, like I mean, basically try to ingest as much information as you can, uh, and try to also just develop a good general knowledge. Um, so, so you at least have like a rough lay of the land of the the knowledge landscape. Um, like try to learn a little bit about a lot of things. Because um, you might not know what you're really interested. In. How would you know what you're really interested in if you at least aren't like doing a peripheral explore, exploration of broadly of of the knowledge landscape, um, and, and you know, talk to people from different walks of life and different uh, industries and professions and skills and occupations. Like just try you know, learn as much as possible. Man, search for meaning. <laughs> Isn't the whole thing a search for meaning? Is yeah, what's the meaning of life and all, you know. But just generally, like I said, I would, I would encourage people to read broadly um, in many different subject areas. Um, and, and, and then try to find something where there's an overlap of your talents and, and what you're interested in. So people may, may, may be good at something, but, or they may have sk skill at a particular thing, but they don't like doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to try to find a thing where you ha your that's a good a good uh, combination of of your of the things that you're inherently good at, but you also like doing. Um, and um, and reading is a super fast shortcut to to figure out which where are you you both good at it you like doing it and it will actually have positive impact. Well, you got to learn about things somehow. So re reading a, a broad range, like just really. Read, read it, you know. One point when I was a kid, I I, kind of, I read through the encyclopedia, uh, so that was pretty helpful. Um, and uh, also things I didn't even know existed, a lot, so obviously. And it's like as broad as it gets. Encyclopedias were digestible, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, 40 years ago. Um, so, um, you know, re maybe read through the, the, the condensed version of the Encyclopedia Britannica, I'd recommend that. Um, you can always like skip subjects where you, you read a few paragraphs and you, you know you're not interested, just jump to the next one. Uh, so read the encyclopedia or skim, skim through it. Um, and um, 
But I, I you know, I put a lot of stock and certainly have a lot of respect for someone who puts in an honest day's work uh, to do useful things. And and just generally to have like a, not a zero sum mindset um, or, or a, like have, have more of a grow the pie mindset. Like the, if you, if you sort of say like, when, when we see people like perhaps, um, including some very smart people kind of t- uh, taking an attitude of uh, like, 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 like doing things that seem like morally questionable, it's often because they have at, at a base sort of axiomatic level, a zero sum mindset. Um, and, and they, without realizing it, they don't realize they have a, a, zero, a zero sum mindset, or, or at least they, they don't realize it consciously. Um, and so if, if you have a zero sum mindset, then the only way to get ahead is by taking things from others. Be, uh, if, if it's like, if, 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 the, if the pie is fixed, then the only way to have more pie is to take someone else's pie. But, but this is false. Like obviously the pie has grown dramatically over time, the mm-hmm. economic pie. Um, so the rea- in reality, you can have the, <laughs> so overuse this analogy, you can have a, a lot of, you can have, there's a lot of pie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, pie, pie is not fixed. Yes. Um, uh, so you really wanna make sure you don't, you're not operating um, without realizing it from a zero sum mindset. Where where the only way to get ahead is to take things from others, then that's going to result in you t- trying to take things from others, which is not not good. It's much better to work on uh, add, adding to the economic pie. Maybe you know, so uh, you know, cre- creating, like I said, cre- creating more than you consume, uh, doing more than you, yeah. Um, so, so that that's a big deal. Um, I think there's like a, you know, a fair number of people in in finance that. Uh, do have a bit of a zero sum mindset. I mean, it's all walks of life. I've, I've seen that. One of the one of the reasons uh, Rogan inspires me is he celebrates others a lot. There's not not creating a constant competition. Like there's a scarcity of resources. And what happens when you celebrate others and you promote others, the ideas of others, it it uh, it actually grows that pie. I mean, it the, every like the uh, the resource the resources become less scarce. Mm-hmm. And that that applies in a lot of kinds of domains. It applies in academia, where a lot of people are very uh, see some funding for academic research is zero sum. And it is not. If you celebrate each other, if you make, if you get everybody to be excited about AI, about physics, above mathematics, I think it, there'll be more and more funding, and I think everybody wins. Yeah, that applies. I think broadly. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So last last question about love and meaning. Uh, what is the role of love in the human condition broadly and more specific to you? How has love, romantic love or otherwise, made you a better person, a better human being? Better engineer? Now you're asking really perplexing questions. Um, it, I, it's, it's hard to, to give up. <laughs> I mean, there are many books, poems, and songs written about what is love and what is what exactly you know um you know what is love baby don't hurt me (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, that's one of the great ones yes yeah you've you've earlier quoted shakespeare but that that's really up there (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean (laughs) love is a many splendored thing uh (laughs) i mean there's um because we've talked about so many inspiring things like be useful in the world, sort of like solve problems, uh, alleviate suffering, but it seems like connection between humans is a source 
you know, it's a, it's a source of joy, it's a source of meaning. And that that's what love is, friendship, love. I, I just wonder if you think about that kind of thing. When you talk about preserving the light of human consciousness right. and us becoming a multiplanetary, multiplanetary species. I mean, to me at least, um, that that means like if we're just alone and conscious and intelligent, it, it doesn't mean nearly as much as if we're with others, right? And there's some magic created when we're together. The uh, the the friendship of it, and I think the highest form of it is love, which I, I think broadly is is much bigger than just sort of romantic, but also yes, romantic love and um, family and those kinds of things. Well, I mean, the reason I guess I care about us becoming multi-planet species in a space-faring civilization is foundationally, I love humanity. Um, and and so I, I wish to see it prosper and do great things and be happy. And, um, and if I did not love humanity, I would not care about these things. So when you look at the whole of it, the, the human history, all the people who's ever lived, all the people alive now, it's pretty... We're we're okay. <laughs> on on the whole, we're, we're a pretty interesting uh, bunch. Yeah. All things considered, and I've read a lot of history, including the darkest, worst parts of it. And uh, despite all that, I think on balance, I, I still love humanity. You joked about it with the forty-two. Uh, what do, what do you think is the meaning of this whole thing? <laughs> Is uh, like is there a non-numerical oh, uh, representation? Like, uh, yeah, well, really, I think what Douglas Adams was saying in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that um, the universe is the answer, and uh, what we really need to figure out are what questions to ask about the answer that is the universe. Yeah, um, and that the question is the really the hard part. And if you can properly frame the question, then the answer, relatively speaking, is easy. Uh, so. So, so therefore, if, if you want to understand what questions to ask about the universe, you want to understand the meaning of life, we need to expand the scope and scale of consciousness so that we're better able to understand the nature of the universe and, and understand the meaning of life. And ultimately, the most important part would be to ask the right question. Yes. Uh, Thereby elevating the role of the interviewer. Yes, yeah, exactly. As the most important human in the room. Absolutely. <laughs> interview, <laughs> good questions are, you know, it's a hard. It's hard to come up with good questions. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it's like that. That is the foundation of my philosophy. Is that um, I I am curious about the nature of the universe, and uh, you know, and obviously I will die. I don't know when I'll die, but I won't live forever. Um, but I would like to know that we're on a path to understanding the nature of the universe and the meaning of life and what questions to ask about the answer of that is the universe. And um, and so if we expand the scope and scale of humanity and, and consciousness in general, um, which includes silicon consciousness, then, then you know, there were, that, that, that seems like a fundamentally good thing. Elon, like I said, um, I'm deeply grateful that you would spend your extremely valuable time with me today and also that you have given millions of people hope in this difficult time, this divisive time, in this uh, cynical time. So I hope you do continue doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for talking today. 
Oh, you're welcome. Uh, thanks for your excellent questions. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Elon Musk. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Elon Musk himself. When something is important enough, you do it, even if the odds are not in your favor. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.